about funny stuff. Serious about food. Serious about anything that I'm in the mood for. Serious. Let's get serious. Talk to me, talk to me, tell me about your fantasy. Talk to me, talk to me, tell me about your fantasy. Talk to me, talk to me, tell me about your fantasy. Let's get serious. Hello, my name is Kendall Bruns. You're listening to Let's Get Serious. And my guest today is Steve Maison. Maison, you got it. I got it it right. Nailed it first time. I have had a horrible, horrible track record. (laughs) <laughs> were they difficult names, or with, were they like easy ones? Anybody's just, names, like Jonas, and it's like Jones. Yeah. No, ever, before up. introducing anyone, I'm always like, all right, how do you say your name? And then we like go <laughs> yeah. over it, and then, but when it comes down to when it's like go time, and I'm then under the yeah. pressure, and it's like, I think it's also that I set up this situation with the music because we don't have to listen to that, but I like to, yeah, like gets kind of gets you in the zone, sure. right? It makes us feel like we're, yeah, something's we're happening. Yeah, we're doing you're not something. just adding it, yeah, we're not just jumping in. Uh, we feel like we're on a show. Sense of immediacy, you know, right? And uh, but maybe also then I, f- I start feeling pressure. Well, like, sure. Yeah, then, right, then you be, really got to be awake. Did I say it right? Got to be ready this? to talk. How did when he this say thing? it? So it's a countdown. Um. Steve. Yeah, that's how you say Steve, too. (laughs) I guess, yeah, you didn't mess that. It's not St. Eve or or, uh, Stevi or... Right. It's the easier of the the two. Yeah, of of the two. Yeah, Steve and Maison. That's, yeah. I brought you here today to talk about your stand-up career. Let's talk about a film that you are... A documentary film that you're the star of yeah i i say you know people always say the star but i don't know if you can be a star in a, a documentary in the subject i guess okay uh That's... i think you know it's like that the, the you know people say like yeah everyone's a porn star there's no porn actors there's you know everyone's a star <laughs> in porn right uh, so i feel the same way kind of like you just automatically if you're in if i'm in the movie i guess i'm yeah i'm starring in the you're movie the but i wouldn't star. consider myself yeah a star i'm the subject you're the but, subject yeah. you're the um the main attraction yeah, yeah, that's it. I guess. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm top build in the in the documentary. Are I don't you, like the pressure of the star. I think that's what you're it is. That's the titular <laughs> character. Yes, exactly. Well, it, it's called dying to do Letterman, so it's oh, almost see. it almost makes it sound like Letterman. I guess Letterman would be is he the the titular well, I guess character? He's in the, right, he's in the title. Yeah. yeah. But the, but the, the title, it's talking about It you, is though. talking about, I am the one that is dying to do Letterman. So, yes, I think you're right. Yeah. So, uh, Inferred. So, we can, talk ab- we can talk about this documentary film. Uh, it recently played at the TBS Just for Laughs Festival. Yes. Um, and so, we can talk about that screening and stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And then there's an upcoming opportunity to see it in Chicago. Uh, yes. Coming up this uh, this Thursday, back uh, as part of the festival. It's still actually part of the festival, even though the festival is over. Uh, sneaky, sneaky! How they do that? <laughs> they keep it. They keep us around. And uh, so, yeah, the, for the Just for Last Film Festival, they showed us once uh, during the festival on uh, this Thursday. What is it? The thirtieth of June uh, at eight p.m. at the Gene Siskel Film Center. We're going to be showing you again. Dying to do Letterman. Yes, so. very, very wonderful little little theater in yeah in the loop. Very As cool, yeah. Say. Listen, it's got Gene Siskel's name on it. It's, yeah. I mean, it, it gives a, an importance to anything, I think, right away that's showing there. I mean, yeah. That's got to look good on a, like a, in a press kit. Yeah. 
The well, everyone else is, yeah, you look all these, uh, can, anyone could say thumbs up, but did Gene Siskel actually agree to show your film at his theater? Yeah. His, he probably didn't his, officially agree to no, show ours, so. but it's kind of inferred. You know? Yeah. So I'm trying to decide what the best entry entry point for, uh, for us to talk about yeah. this movie is, um, because I'd like, uh, I know that there's probably a very common short explanation or description that people give for this film mm-hmm. that you've seen in print yeah. many, many times. And so I think um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to give your version uh, when, when you're, if you're just trying pitching it yourself yeah, if for was, people yeah. to go see the film, how do you describe it? All right. So uh, yeah. And cut me off at any time. If I, if I go too long on the, the version you want to hear, uh, I, so I'm a stand-up comedian. I was making a, uh, a living doing stand-up, which is one of my dreams in my life already, was to be doing that. Uh, big Letterman fan. He's one of the guys that, that made me get into uh, stand-up comedy. Growing up, I, I, I loved him. And uh, was doing comedy full-time for about six years when I uh, went to the hospital and got, uh, got diagnosed. I had pains in my uh, side and uh, found out I had cancer in two places, my intestines and my liver. They were able to treat the intestines and a bunch of tumors on my liver that were uh, uncurable and untreatable. And doctors said, uh, worst case scenario, I might only have five years to live. So, uh, Did he give you a best case scenario? Well, the best case, here's how it broke down. And uh, it kind of explained a little more in the movie. Um, They said it. They sat down, uh, my girlfriend at the time and I, uh, some doctors at UCLA, and said... uh, there's no treatment. There's no cure for what you've had. And this is after we've taken care of the intestinal part. That's where it started, and it spread to my liver. And so they said, there's no cure or treatment for what you have here. Uh, hopefully, they grow your tumors grow slowly, and we find you know something, some way to treat this. Um, some people that we've seen, like yourselves, uh, have lived 10 years or 15 years with this. Like that was that was their best. So we, by mm-hmm. the way they were saying, it was obvious that they were saying, hey, hey, good news, you could live as long as 10 or 15 years with this. So. You know, they were they were obviously trying to be, you know, positive and helpful. <laughs> but we, you know, my, my girlfriend at the time looked at each other. We were like, OK, well, what's the worst case? You know, you're saying I could live that long. What what what's the worst? And they, they all kind of looked around. They're like mm, five years. And uh, they weren't even positive about that. They're like, look, at it, you know, just the way these tumors work at any point, they could start growing rapidly and, mm-hmm. you know, shut down your liver. And that's that's obviously when you're in, in big trouble. So they, when. I think I've heard before that mm-hmm. in these types of situations, they don't offer up that information necessarily if you don't probe for it. Yeah, I think it's I think like it, sort of a standard policy, right? I think that's that's how it would normally have happened. Uh, you know, there's so many weird things about the medical industry I've got to learn, and that's I think one on one they're very much like that. But uh, this meeting that I'm talking about, it was again me and my girlfriend and five doctors from UCLA in an office. And it was one of those where they were all talking to each other about the best way to proceed. And it was almost like my girlfriend and I weren't there and I'm the one obviously dealing with it. And they're, you know, kind of deciding what should be done. Cause you know, there were, there are a couple, uh, practices or treatments that had come around that, you know, weren't, weren't verified or weren't, uh, completely run through all the testing yet, but they were like, well, this, well, this might maybe be an idea, you know, it hasn't been proven yet, but maybe we can try it. And, uh, you know, then my oncologist was fighting back saying, no, 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 there's no need to, you know, right now is, you know, it's not affecting his liver. So it's not, 
let's not rush to anything until we know something is 100 percent or at least 75 percent we see a rate that it's that it's helpful here let's not just jump on anything mm-hmm. um so i think it was a little different in a good way and a bad way uh that i was there so i did hear all the back and forth and the reality of what they were talking about um but in the bad way that they were you know again they weren't it's it wasn't the most coddling thing where they were you know worried about you know here's the person we're talking about and they're kind right. of talking about me and you know like i wasn't there um but that was all right you know i'd rather have it that way and have the have the truth than you know not know what's going on so you get diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and you are told worst case scenario five years or, five years you know nothing but nobody you know no, no one knows for sure exactly yeah and no from guarantee. there so from there, uh, you know, listen, go through all the uh, the five stages of grief. Probably, I don't know off the top of my head what they are, but you know, I had definitely some some depression and anger and sadness and all that and shock. And do you mind if I ask how old were you at the time? Yeah, thirty four okay. at that time. And so again, at that even best case, what what they were talking about, I was looking at late forties, you know, and I was like, holy crap, you know, that's that's a shock in itself. And then the five years, not even making it to forty, was you know even more of a shock. So, but after getting through the kind of initial like shock of everything and getting back to the routine of life a little bit, I asked myself, okay, if that's really true, what, what do I want to make sure happens in those five years? And I know, you know, some people it's probably, oh, I want to have kids or I want to travel or I want to do this. I mean, I was already living one of my dreams of doing comedy already, but the bigger one was, uh, performing on the late show with David Letterman. And it was a, you know, it was something I always knew was going to happen someday i knew it i just once i started comedy and had been doing it for a year or two i was like okay i think i'm the kind of comic that dave would have on uh i know it's going to happen i'd had people tell me oh you're you know very tv friendly comic oh i could see that joke that's a very letterman-esque joke that kind of thing so i was always confident it was going to happen but i was just kind of waiting for it to come to me um comedy kind of works through referrals and making a name for yourself and people hear about you and bring you into new clubs and bookers and that kind of thing so I thought Letterman's going to happen the same way. Eventually, I'm going to run into someone who says, hey, uh, you know, I, I'm going to toss your name in the hat for uh, these auditions we're doing for The Late Show, uh, and you should, you know, come do it, or I would talk to the booker somehow or cross paths with them. So, um, but I, so I wasn't actively chasing it. I just figured, all right, just like everything else that had happened in my career, it'll, it'll come in time. And you're, and you're talking about before the cancer. Before the cancer, yeah. So at this point, yeah, it was a shift in perspective, like, okay, you can't just wait for it anymore, and... Uh, so, yeah, I decided to start chasing it full force and, uh, you know, rather than waiting for it to come to me to uh, pull out all the stops and do whatever I could to get noticed by them and, uh, you know, get on the show uh, in case that five years really did come true. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of that sets up the premise that's, of yeah, what that's the film is the about. Premise, right? Now, um, how long ago was where you, was your diagnosis? So that was 2005. So okay. uh, we're recording this in, uh, what, mid-2011? So yeah. obviously I've luckily uh, lived past that diagnosis. Spoiler. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> this is good. This is not from the grave. Um, <laughs> and so I'd like I'd like to talk. T- I thought the film was really uh, interesting, and I, I enjoyed it very much. Right. Um, I'd like to talk about a lot of things from the film, but I, I want to start by maybe going back a little more in depth about the stuff that happened to you before, before what we sure. see in the movie. Yeah. And then, um, I guess we also need to decide if, uh, if you want to get into like what it's hard to like, what do you consider a spoiler? Yeah. And well, what, you never know. Again, part you... of me even being here doing this podcast <laughs> is a spoiler alert at some point. How have, you, how have you dealt with that? You know, I think the big thing we tell people again, uh, and, and you see in the movie, 
I, uh, so after a year after the diagnosis, I'm kind of picking up the piece and decide what I'm going to do. And I think you see in the movie, it didn't start as a documentary. It started out, this is before Facebook and YouTube, all the things I might do now if, if, it happened again or <laughs> not happened right. again, but happened. We now. live in a different, we live in a <laughs> very do. different world from six years ago. It sounds crazy, <laughs> but right. We do. Uh, I would obviously, the first thing I do is start a Facebook page of, you know, dying to learn. This is my project. But at that point, all I did was start a website and I put up a video of my comedy and ask people, look at my comedy. If you think I'm funny enough, click here and drop Dave an email. And mm-hmm. that was it. And Right away, people started responding, you know, both, uh, both, hey, I think you're funny, uh, and hey, I heard about this, I think it's inspiring, I think it's great what you're doing. Thankfully, I didn't get any, you're awful, you're terrible, <laughs> I hope you die, or anything like that, or it went to my spam folder, hopefully. Right. Um, I mean, I'm surprised you put anything on the internet, you'd think you'd get some of that. Well, I, I, listen, <laughs> I think that's, that's almost the bonus of that it was its own site, because I think oh, if right. it was a Facebook or YouTube video or any of that kind of thing... I'm positive it would, right. that would have happened. But again, it was my own personal site, and it didn't really have a comment section where people could just chime in. It wasn't like that. Uh, but they could email me and contact me and you know send me an email. So maybe, you know, it's, I think that's one of the reasons people are so cranky on the Internet. It's so easy just to yeah. one click and you're leaving your thoughts. If you have to go you that extra communicating step, with a person. Right. Yeah. If you have to go to that extra step where you're like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to go from my actual email and send this person a negative comment and and now they might be able to respond quickly to me and have my information, they're a little more hesitant to do it. So I got a, a great response early on and um uh, but it was just that. It was just a website called Dying to Do Letterman. And then uh, people started asking. They'd be like, hey, I, I emailed Letterman. What uh, what happened? You know, like a month later, they'd be like, hey, do you, have you heard any update? Have they heard? Yeah. So I started, again, no YouTube at that time, started posting videos just of me giving them feedback. Like, hey, here's what's happening. Here's an update. And um, then uh, my girlfriend said, hey, you should keep all these. And maybe at the end of the project, you can make a documentary out of it. So that was the the very first, you know, kind of impetus of, Oh, maybe we could be, do something more with this. And then uh, I luckily have two uh, two friends um, who were in the uh, entertainment industry, and the, I knew they had made a documentary before. And they they contacted me and said, "Hey, can we help in any way?" They were they weren't talking about doing a documentary; they were just talking about, "Is there anything we can do? Can we? We've already emailed Dave. We think you're hilarious. Can we help in any other way?" They actually asked. Uh, they knew some people at NBC, and they asked. Uh, They're like, "We could help. We could probably get you in touch with the Leno people. Do you want to do Leno?" And I was like, "Uh." <laughs> No, <laughs> like was, uh, that might hurt my cause. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, but I asked them. I said, well, you know, what you could do is I've started saving all these tapes. I'd love to maybe in the end make a documentary about this. And uh, they uh, they right away uh, gave me a better camera and said, uh, well, here, you know, here, this is for you. Start with this camera. We're going to think about it because we're friends. We don't want to make some silly lifetime puff piece about you know someone chasing you know their dream and he's right. got cancer. We don't want to do that. So there's going to be some hard stuff if we really make the documentary we want to make where, you know, it might affect our friendship. So uh, they thought about it for a couple of days and got back to me and said, OK, we're in as long as you're you're open to us. And you you're, know, you're talking about uh, the directors of the film yes. who are who are Biagio Messina and his wife, uh, Joke Finciun. And uh, they're a married couple. Uh, they met in film school, and uh, now they have a production company called Joke Productions. And they do a lot of uh, a lot of television and uh um, like I said, they've done documentaries in the past and mm-hmm. yeah, their, uh, their career has really taken off over the, you know, they signed up in the beginning. My goal was to get on Letterman within a year and, uh, it ended up, you know, here we are six years later, we just finished the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it just in this past March got finished. So six years, I'm sure they, 
didn't realize they were signing up for that much, but thankfully they stayed along for the whole ride and the post-production and all that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're amazing. So going back to, um, to the very, to the very beginning, mm-hmm. in the beginning. <laughs> you, you say in the film that you didn't really do stand up until you moved to California. Is that right? Right. That's correct. Yeah. I grew up here in uh, the suburbs of Chicago and uh, do people know where you do the podcast from? Did I just they, spoil it? No, they do. Okay. okay. They do. But I should have mentioned that you are a former Chicago. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's now, just, where do you live now? Uh, now I live in Los Angeles. Okay. But yes, uh, you were from Chicago. Yeah. But uh, didn't really do stand up. No, no, no. I didn't start stand up uh, until uh, I moved uh, out of the state and um, moved to San Francisco. And San Francisco, I mean, you know, the movie kind of touches on this, but, uh, you know, the family I had, and I think a lot of, not everyone in the Midwest, but a lot of people in the Midwest are just very, you know, it's about stability and finding a job nine to five and that Practical. kind of thing. Practical. Practical. Exa- exactly. And uh, that's how my parents were. And I, I never even shared my dream that I wanted to do comedy with them or, you know, uh, my big goal was to be on Letterman. None but of that you knew, stuff. Yeah, even as a kid, like, like at what point? Well, I knew I wanted to be a comedian. I saw it probably in about the same year I saw, you know, Letterman started his show after Carson and started having on a bunch of kind of different comedians than, than Johnny Carson had on. I used to watch The Tonight Show with my mom and dad. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I saw them and all of a sudden there was this guy doing all this different stuff uh, on his show after Johnny Carson and kind of, you know, really like that. And then around the same time, uh, you know, I think we got cable and I saw uh, a Richard Pryor, you know, comedy special and was like, oh, my God. This is, you know, and now it's not just TV friendly, you know, kind of late night. It's just wide open. I was like, wow, I, I want to do that for a living. That's that's what I want to do. And then uh, just watching Letterman over the years, he was obvious to me, even before Carson left, he was the guy I was like, that's the show I want to be on. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, what was the main thing you noticed that was different? I Well, listen, everything about Dave, I think, is different. First of all, he's a Midwest guy. I think I feel right away there's some... You know, like, oh, my God, everyone on, on Johnny, even Johnny Carson himself, even though he, he's from Nebraska, uh, he always felt. And again, it's probably just because it's my parents generation, you know, that he felt like Hollywood. You know, everyone he had on seemed like a, you know, a star. And if they weren't a star, they were they were almost making fun of that. The person wasn't a star. You know what I mean? It was like, we're going to have the, the rooster caller from whatever come out. And, do and this he thing. was such a star. Yeah. And he was gigantic. Point. Exactly. You know, an icon already. And uh so I think all of a sudden there was this guy who's who's not really I hate to say it Dave but not great looking but you know he's got a gap in his teeth and he's kind of awkward it's like a traditional he's not yeah leading. at all he's he's not a guy you expect to see on TV hosting a you know hosting a show and uh, he's doing all these different things that uh, from what Carson was doing and and like I said having on a lot of like different comics you know doing different things rather than just the straight traditional you know. Uh, comics you might see on uh on carson you know that were much more experimental not not that i'm even i mean i'm definitely not i wouldn't call myself alternative comedy or anything like that uh style wise but it definitely it just opened it up to me a little bit it made me think oh okay you don't have to be there isn't some factory spitting out you know uh comedians that are they're good looking and normal and everyone you saw on carson out in los angeles just you know that here's a guy from the midwest who who was obviously a comedian saw him on uh carson himself and now he has his own show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think and just how different it was. It really just all of a sudden felt like, oh, and, you know, here's the, probably the biggest part. that <laughs> When you get down to the psychology of it, my parents didn't like him. They, they <laughs> thought Letterman, they didn't get it. They're like, 
what what is funny always about that? comes down to that yeah exactly so i'm sure there was a rebellion of that like well you don't think he's funny that makes me think he's all the more funny you know um so yeah for whatever reason yeah i i got really attracted to to that to the show and yeah started following him all the time mm-hmm. um, yeah and so so you so that was really the thing that made you want to want to do comedy yeah i wanted to get into comedy like i said those two things letterman and and, and prior and uh you know uh but again i didn't share that dream and i didn't even chase it because you know i just over and over i mean i even if i said i you know when you're a kid you you, you say all the things you want to do you you have a great game at uh, little league and you're like i'm gonna be a major league right. baseball player all right yeah fall back on that but you still got to study and have a real practical life and so just always kind of being pushed back that way i never told anyone that did, that's did you I ever do, do like public speaking stuff or were you i mean did you think did people think i don't know such a sort of generic do people question think I, yeah, like, <laughs> was I a class clown or anything like that i mean just in general did you feel like because i've taught interviewed some people who are like oh i never did stand up or anything but then i find out that they did you know, like everything theater else. and debate, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like they did have like tons of times where they were in front of people talking right. and making them laugh, but it just technically wasn't stand. Yeah, you know? no, I don't. I didn't even have that. I uh, listen. I was in a couple plays, you know, in high school, but I was like, you know, it was always like third man or yeah. you know, guy in hat stuff like that. So, so very, what, very small roles. What made you move to San Francisco? So yeah, I uh, I graduated from Northern Illinois University. And uh, moved out to San Francisco. My sister was living out there. And uh, she had a couple kids. I, you know, at that point had no no plans to have children or anything. Wanted to see my niece and nephew grow up. So I, I moved out to be close to them. And uh, fell in love with San Francisco. They moved. They ended up moving back three months after I moved out there. <laughs> and uh, so I asked myself, I was like, all right, am I going to move back to Chicago just to be close to, to, to them? Or, uh, you know, stay out here? And I had already fallen in love with San Francisco. And uh, decided you know, there's something about San Francisco. I mean, there's a reason that there's it's you know little, it's hypnotizing. Yeah, that the, there's a reason that there's the the hippie culture there and the gay culture and all the all these things. There's something very freeing that's ingrained in the the psyche there. I think it's I think some of it is the light. I don't I don't know <laughs> how to describe it, but anytime I've been in California, particularly. Well, just really anywhere in California, the quality of the light is different. Yeah. I think. Like the uh, sunlight? You're yeah. Saying? The quality of the sunlight. And yeah. maybe it's the amount of pollution or just like what part of the atmosphere the, the sun's yeah, going through. Yeah. But I just feel like there's this sort of... It, it, and it creates... Um, so that creates your your vision's totally different. Like yeah, the way yeah. you see everything is different and it makes you feel different. Yeah, well and that was it, I think. I think there is a there was all of a sudden a freedom like okay, I would I would have been afraid to to like I said to even tell anyone my dream, let alone chase it back here. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I felt like okay, uh everyone's away, everyone who I would be afraid to tell this dream is back in uh the Midwest. I'm out here alone uh and this is that city, you know, that that kind of opens up to that. Like, all right, what do you want to do? You can be yourself here. What do you want to do? And uh, just as luck would have it, uh, San Francisco has a great comedy scene. It's, you know, it's known as one of the best. So I, I uh, heard about that and I was like, all right, well, this is it. Let's, uh, let's give it a try instead of, you know, but Chicago, Chicago is also a comedy town. Well, in a big way. So what was your, I mean, did you, besides the interest in stand up, were you interested in, improv sketch yeah. that kind of thing i i used to go again all the time uh, growing up used to go there was a in the suburbs uh there was a there was a second city branch out there 
And I had a friend uh, that his brother worked at it, worked at the door or something. So we used to go in and catch the, you know, after the show, they'd always have the improv. And so we'd go in and catch the improv, you know, in, in high school and stuff. And I loved it. I never, never did it myself or never thought about signing up or anything like that. But I think the difference is for me, as much as I was attracted to that and like Saturday Night Live and that kind of thing and sketch stuff, but I was more attracted to the stand-up part. And as great a uh, comedy town as Chicago is, it's known as a as a sketch town. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Second City, uh, Troops, that kind of thing. Now, the one thing I will say, that the little caveat to that is, it's really changed since I started comedy. Uh, I used to come back the first three or four years after I started comedy, and I would, you know, I'd play, I'd play the rooms here and, and really got to know a bunch of the guys on the scene here. And I would ask them, how about the scene? And, and they'd be like, comedy is awful here. It's terrible. We're, we're second to the sketch and improv groups. No one cares about stand-up. Mm-hmm. But amidst all that complaining and stuff, they were really brewing something at that time. You know, it's it almost the, the that, I don't know why I use the word anger, but they, they kind of fought back against that, all these comedians. They, you know, they have were, to try harder. Yeah, try. exactly. And and now, I mean, if you ask around, Chicago's got one of the great comedy scenes. I mean, you, you see it. It's uh, There's articles about it everywhere. What's kind of grown and come out of Chicago stand-up mm-hmm. comedy-wise over the past decade? Uh, but at that time, it was it was the opposite. People were like, "No, there's nothing here. It's terrible." And again, that's that's what gives birth to these great rooms that the, all of a sudden people open it, and uh, yeah. that people are trying different things just to get attention over these sketch and improv groups. Well, I'd say during the the Just for Laughs festival, there were a lot of Chicago, like even like people who are either from Chicago doing stuff now or mm-hmm. people who are from here that you know went on yeah. to other places. Like almost every show you saw there was some Chicagoan yeah, involved yeah. and you know, it, it was impressive. I found it. I was impressed. Yeah. And listen, you know, uh, again, I mean, I'm very, uh, Chicago centric. I think, you know, Chicago has the funniest people. I'm anytime I hear some actor I like, or, uh, you know, the, the history of Sarah live, all the great guys that came out of Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, it makes me proud to just grow up in the shadow of that. Uh, but again, it, it, like I said, until, you know, the last half half decade or so it was it was known more as the other side the stand-up was really pushed to the side and i think even the guys who are who have made a name for themselves so in the, com- the stand-up comedy scene over the past six or seven years would admit that they'd be like mm-hmm. that's yeah, that's what changed. made it so good is that they had to fight back so did seeing stuff like second city make comedy as a career that didn't make comedy as a career seem more realistic to you I don't think so. I knew, I remember my sister telling me that one of her friend's brothers, I think, got into the touring group with Second City. And uh, even then, I still didn't, I didn't think about like, oh, you know, that that's a way to, to do it. You know, you could, you could get in and you can make a living. It's still, I don't know. It just didn't I don't feel know if real. These guys are making a living. <laughs> no, I <did>. Exactly. <laughs> I Listen, mean, I don't know. Again, even, even to say, yeah, I stand up. I've talked comedy, to a couple can, of them. <laughs> so yeah, you, you seems like a really good thing, but it's, <laughs> it's not yeah. like you're not retiring Some, on it. <laughs> you could, you could keep busy for a while right. doing it. That's probably it. Well, listen, stand up comedy is the same way. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, no, it never, it never entered my, my mind that that was a thing. I knew, I, I think it was that there was Saturday Night Live and that seemed at that point, you know, growing up, that was the thing. That's where people who did sketch yeah. and improv ended up. And there were a lot more avenues, I thought, for stand-up comedians. You know, I would see stand-up comedians go on, uh, you know, 
Carson or Letterman and, uh, you know, then Conan comes along and all, all the other great late night talk shows or the other place you'd see comedians on HBO. And then those guys would end up in movies and, uh, you know, that kind. So it, it just seemed, I don't know, and I'm just guessing, I don't know why I never saw that other end of it of the, the acting and sketch side as a, as a, a is, choice. I mean, is there... I mean, it could just come down to what you found more interesting personally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, did you, you, you identified yourself as more of a stand-up guy versus a sketch improv. Yeah. Type. I love it. You know, I've listened. I've, uh, once I did start comedy in San Francisco, I took some sketch and improv classes, just especially improv, just to get better at, you know, thinking on my feet and being more comfortable on stage and that kind of thing. And it, and it was invaluable. Um, but and I'm not snooty about it. I know I know there's you know there's a lot of sketching uh, uh, improv people who hate comedians and comedians who are like sketching improv is is that's you know that that's when you want to get a laugh every four minutes instead of every minute. You know what I mean? That's their attitude about it. And I'm not like that. I don't think that I I have a great respect for it. But I don't know. Yeah, I I, I guess I'm just unaware of myself why I've chose one over the other. Maybe it's you know uh, laziness. You know, it's probably in the end, it's probably control. You know what I mean? That mm. that you got to work that as a group. That sounds more likely than laziness. Yeah. Considering. Well, <laughs> well, you know, there's ladies, it, it goes with the control a little bit that you have to, oh, right, right. you know, I'm completely in control and I can work on my own schedule. Whereas right. uh, if I have to work with a group, you know, I have to uh, make concessions and uh, be at certain places at certain times. But on the flip and, side, you have to do everything. Yeah. So, you know, there's, right. there's checks and balances. There definitely is. And <laughs> yeah. So I, I will say in the end, I know that, yeah, I love... The, you know the control it's it's hard for me sometimes to uh, and i've been in in many environments you know stand-up comedy or writing wise and things that have happened in my career where i have to work with a group and uh mm-hmm. uh you know the, i love it and hate it at the same time it, it, it's great to open that up and um work in a group and you know i know when i'm on stage i'm in complete control and you know i live or die just by myself and there's you know i think i like that that tight wire act so how did you get into doing it in san francisco like did you just so there was a yeah there was a uh um comedy coach in san francisco and uh i i think i found him on the internet or something like that um i must have went to a comedy club i can't remember how it something had made me look up you know a place to do comedy in san francisco and along with listing like open mics and places do comedy comedy clubs there was an advertisement for a comedy coach and he would teach you how to do stand-up comedy so Sent him an email, and uh, it's so funny looking back now, like such a car salesman. Uh, right. You know, I wrote and said, oh, you know, I'm from Chicago, and, uh, you know, and I, again, I'm not, I wasn't 17. I was you know, in my late 20s at this point already, and I, I, I was like, I really always wanted to do stand-up comedy and just never have, and I, I don't even know how to get started. Like, his email back was like, you're exactly the kind of guy that we're looking for. You <laughs> What's know, your to credit get started. card number? Right, exa- <laughs> and that's exactly what he was going for, and uh, so it was like an eight-week thing, and after... You know, the first week was fantastic. I, I felt like I really learned. You know, it was one-on-one. And, uh, was he a stand-up himself? He or? said he had done stand-up a long time ago. I've never seen, actually, any footage <laughs> no of <proof>. him. <laughs> yeah, no proof of it. But, uh, yeah, he had a long list of credits and people he wrote and worked with. And, you know, the, some, some you know, big names. Uh, so, I mean, I never vetted any of those. But, he you know, <laughs> he told me these were the people he, he worked with. And, you know, I did see him hobnobbing at some of the clubs with, with people who were you know, very respected. So, um, yeah, started studying in the first couple of weeks. Listen, I, I, I know there's people that hate, uh, the idea of stand up comedy classes, but I, I, I think 
if it's done right, I mean, I think like anything else, like why wouldn't you want to learn something you don't know? You, of course, can can just go out on your own and, and learn it your own the same way you can learn to ride a bike on your own. Uh, but, you know, there is yeah, a I little help with someone. I'm sure there's some you. shorthand you can pick mm-hmm. up on, you yeah. know, like might might advance you a good you know, a couple of months of uh, that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah, struggling you're, to figure out certain things exactly. yourself, and you know, I guess the downside could be if maybe they teach you bad habits, but if you're not smart enough to work your way out of those, then well, you're probably exactly going to have trouble. It. Yeah, one that's way, exactly right? it. So about halfway through the first, uh, you know, eight week, the you know, eight weeks of the class, he, you know, I kind of knew I was I was done because they already start, you know, oh, you want to sign up for your next eight weeks, you know, and that kind of thing, and I was always like already realizing I think there's a lot of this I just need to go and do myself and and learn that way, but it's still at the same point I will say invaluable those those things I learned. I, I'm I'm not the kind of guy who who goes out and asks a lot of questions and that kind of thing. So it was nice to have someone early on just the basic things like as silly as it sounds how how to hold the microphone and make sure you're talking into it versus turning your head and talking away and right. um, mic technique mic technique and you know I, listen if you've seen any bad comedy you 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 see all these little basic things that it's like well this guy obviously no one no one's pulled him aside and said this is what you, this is what you got to do or you you know you're listening to a comedian and people are yelling no talk into the mic or you're too far away or they're not listening or, or back off the they're mic not, they're or, right they're all these goofy things they're just playing with the cord while they're back talking your hands over exactly. the thing all this little stuff so for me again I, I i really thought it was valuable so as much as people trash sometimes the the people who teach comedy i think if it's done right like anything else you so know? you'd start with that and then you just started hitting stand uh open yeah. mics and kind of just working working your way through yeah the... i remember by the by the by the third week i was like okay when i, I want to get up and, and the guy was like no i don't think you're ready yet and that's kind of when i knew i was done i was like well what kind of class can this be if I'm not not on stage yet? And so I, yeah, I uh, just looked up all the open mics, and I had a day job at the at that time, and I just started. Uh, the minute my day job was over, I would drive into San Francisco, and uh, there was at least two or three open mics you do a night. So I would, you know, I'd keep a chart on my calendar at work, you know, when I was supposed to be doing my day job uh, of all the sets I did, you know, and add them up, and I was getting, you know, eighteen, nineteen sets a week, you know, of little wow. five minute chunks, and. Uh, what was your day job at the time? It was, you know, it was in the middle of the dot-com boom of the, the kind of late 90s there. And uh, I was placing people into jobs, like at all these startup companies. Mm. And uh, I actually got all these offers because they, they were hiring people for ridiculous prices who had no skills. A lot of offers to come to all these startups. But, of course, the, when you, you do a startup, you know, they're expecting you to work these long, crazy hours, you know, you know 12, mm. 13, 14 hours a day. Uh, great money. But I wanted still that flexibility that I was done at four or five o'clock, and then I had my evening to go do comedy. Mm. And uh, luckily, the, my bosses kind of knew that I, I could have left many times, and they gave me a lot of flexibility as I started getting offered gigs, like, you know, out of out of the city or out of the country, not out of the country, but out of state. And uh, yeah, they'd give me Fridays off or Thursday and Friday off, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. So it was a real flexibility. A big thing, you know, there's the little things that you look back on and it's like ah that really i didn't realize it at the time but that really helped me become the comic i was that flexibility that i had at this job another person who didn't have that flexibility wouldn't wouldn't have been able to get the stage time i got right and and that's really what makes you good so how how long then did that go on before you saw some kind of other milestone yeah i think the the next milestone was the dot-com bubble burst and it was obvious that my job finding jobs for people was going to be over soon too and so uh, 
then I just started asking myself, okay, can, can you make a living? Can you let go of the day job thing and just do comedy full time? And, uh, that was, yeah, 2000, end of 2001, beginning of 2002. And yeah, since then, I, I've so, just done it So by that time, you were, you were getting, you were making some money doing Yeah, doing yeah, making, up. yeah, not, you know, as much as my day job, but enough mm-hmm. to, to, to pay the rent and, and get by. And, uh, again, it's a, you know, it, it's a different lifestyle than you would get, you know, there's no benefits, there's you, no insurance or that. having to tour in order to do yeah, that yeah you gotta time. you gotta you gotta you gotta tour to do it i think most people anyone who stays in one city i don't think there's any city you can make maybe new york city you can make a, mm-hmm. a living doing it i think it'd even be hard there I, I don't know that there's any guys that do it without being famous that can do it and stay just in the city and never leave i don't mm-hmm. think there's enough places to do that yeah. um but yeah you, well, you know new york there's lots of I I would imagine a lot of the stand-ups there are also doing writing gigs, doing exactly. this. Exactly, right. You know. So full-time, yeah. And again, I didn't, I've had some writing gigs in recent years, but those first few years, you know, six, seven years, it was all just, just stand-up yeah. I was making a living at. You know, so touring the country, doing that. And then, yeah, and overseas as well. I went, ended up going, you see in the movie, perform in Iraq and Afghanistan and that kind of thing. So, Were you, did you work with an agent and stuff to do that, just, or was it all just... Just me. In fact, even to this day, I uh, no no you know manager or specific agent. You know, a bunch of bookers and uh, people I work with. You know, routinely that book a bunch of stuff. But uh, everything I've got, I've got on my own. So that takes us up to two thousand two, and then yeah. you were diagnosed in two thousand five, right? Two thousand, yeah, yeah, middle of two thousand five. Okay, two thousand five. So this might be a good time for us to listen to something. Yeah. Uh, so that um, we've been talking about your stand-up let's let's hear some yeah let's take a take now a listen. do you know uh when like what time period this what i'm gonna play is from yeah i think this is actually probably from that time period this is maybe the first uh you know i had a lot of jokes you know you know kind of short little things and this this is maybe the first bit like a nice chunk of funny that i put together that people started saying like i kind of got i was known for this joke I think, uh, uh, in San Francisco. Well, I feel like I set this up perfectly. Though. Yeah. All right. So here we go. And this is, uh, this is Steve Maison, uh, doing comedy. So this today, this parking lot, I don't know if you guys saw it, even here in the parking lot in Arden, they had the, these flyers up for this launch cat. Probably seen similar before if you haven't seen this one, but this is one of those cute ones where it actually says on the flyer, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> They had a picture of the cat, and I don't know how they did it, but he was smiling. Cat's not smiling. He's actually on the flyer like, I'm lost. I'm gray with black spots. My name's Mr. Giggles. Help me. Screw that cat. I'm not helping that cat. I get it. You're telling me he was smart enough to get his picture taken. Then go down to Kinko's and have a bunch of flyers made up. Post them all over Sacramento, but he can't find his own way home? Screw that cat. I'm not helping him. I don't care for Mr. Gibby. You know who else I don't care for? Those bastards at Kinko's. He was there. With the flyers. They had him in the store paying for the merchandise. Help the cat out, Kinko's. Stop making copies for 10 minutes and call. The number was on the flyer. 
All right, lost cat. A lost cat bit. Ah, the memories. <laughs> so, <laughs> c- can we deconstruct the joke a little bit? Sure. Here? What, oh uh, my god. Yeah. <laughs> so, how? Do, so, where? Where do you? Uh, where do you end up writing a lost cat bit like that? Yeah, I think. Listen, do you call I, them bits? I know. Yeah, I, I, I know them. that this. Uh, Sketch people get real upset if you call them like skits and stuff. So I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I'm not as familiar with the stand-up terminology. Yeah, I'll just say that I have no uh, uh, offense to it. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what to call it. I know what I call it. Yeah, I call them you know bits. A bunch of jokes together is a, a bit uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I listen. I'm again probably out of when I first started. I think every joke I wrote was sitting down and write. Sitting down, like right. trying down to write, and it. trying like, to write. It's like jokes. okay, joke writing time. Exactly. And uh, listen, that's great. That it, seems like it would be very hard. <laughs> it, it was very difficult, especially if you've never done anything, you know, like that. I'm sure writers, uh, people who can write a book. I mean, that's amazing to me. It's ridiculous that someone could sit down with, you know, just uh, a computer and, and write ideas coming out of their head, and then edit it and make it where other people would want to read that as well. I mean, it's amazing. So I would just sit down and, and try and write for a half hour a day and, and see what came out and try and make it funny. Um, and that, that went on probably for probably a year or two. And, and a lot, I got a lot of good jokes out of that. Is but, that what the class guy told you to do? Yeah, that was, that, <laughs> that was it. Yeah. He, he was like, right. You know, the three things that they were, uh, you know, write and revise and, and then perform. Yeah. Right. Revise and perform. And, um, so yeah, I, I did that and it was valuable. I think that, I think you need to build that skill up. And, uh, you know, the, especially the revision skill. Um, but that's probably the one of the first bits where I kind of stopped writing as a, you know, as a duty. And I just started waiting for inspiration. Then I was like, OK, I'm going to wait till I see something and it makes me laugh. And then I'm going to sit down and write about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to do it on any set time. I'm just going to wait for things to come to me. And when I think they're funny, I'll write about them. And I think, yeah, I, I must have seen, you know. One of those flyers that, yeah. you know, was written from that perspective. And I mean, so that's there's, ridiculous. There's probably a combination of those two things that has to happen because there are some people that wait. I'll just write a song <laughs> when I'm inspired, but then they don't ever write a right. song. Right. Yeah, it never comes out. Exactly. <laughs> just never quite get the right inspiration. Yeah. And maybe that's fine, too. Maybe yeah. you're not supposed to be writing songs then. But um, so. So, yeah, you just probably saw a flyer and then. Yeah, and then and then said, okay, you know, I probably, you know, I'm uh, now I get, thank God, I got a, you know, an iPhone where I can right away pull up notes and put an idea down, and then later write, you know, flesh it out completely. But at that point, I, you know, I carried a, a little notebook with me everywhere, uh, and uh, you know, wrote just the idea down before. You mean before iPhones? <laughs> before there was places. Man, yeah. What? God, it's again, like, this is year. This is like, yeah, <laughs> we're going back. Yeah. No YouTube, no Facebook, no iPhones when when all this started. Yeah. Gosh, it was a different world. People aren't going to believe it. So that that leads us up pretty much to um, to where the the meat of the film. Yeah, the I film think that starts. yeah, that's where kind of the movie comes in. Where, yeah. So um, I I'm trying to decide. Like, I really want to talk about everything. Yeah. So I want to, there to be spoilers, but I also really want. Uh, people to go see see the film. Yeah. So uh, maybe we let me maybe we can get a little bit further. Whatever, wherever we'll you want to go. A little bit we'll further, and then it. and then I'll and then I'll uh, create a cutoff point for the people that, where people want to tune out. Really want to tune okay, out. That's a, that's but um, so um, so you you 
when you have this crisis mm-hmm. of being diagnosed with cancer, your the short story is you get told you have cancer and then you decide, well, my goal is to be on Letterman. Mm-hmm. Um, was that an immediate thing? Was there like a short list and that kind of like you ended up picking that? It's like, it seems like uh, from the point of view of the film, mm-hmm. it became your one focused goal. Yeah. And there's other stuff that happens too that happens with long. your relationship and you end up uh getting married. I end up marrying yeah, the girl. Um, yeah. You could say her name. Yeah, Denise. <laughs> well, I did I was trying to think if I had said her name yet. You know, that's one of the things that I, it feels like a spoiler to me because there's a there's I don't know if you're in the movie yeah. there's a there's a thing listen, it, it's amazing when I watch the movie every time. I I'd been dating this for the people who haven't seen it yet, dating this woman for 7 months at that point mm-hmm. when this happens when I get this diagnosis and we're both in our you know, uh, mid thirties. And, uh, if the roles were reversed, I don't know that I would have st- stuck with someone who's going to maybe gone in five years, and, especially and it, as a woman, you know, yeah. who th- those are, you know, childbearing years and like set up the rest of your life here. Are you going to waste that with someone who might be gone? And in the film, um, yeah, I guess we did spoil it, but like you do yeah. a good job of, um, like it's not presented necessarily like that's what's going to happen. No, exactly. Right I, I actually say what I'm saying to you, like, I don't think, I don't know that's even fair to ask someone to stick with you in that way. Uh, cause again, they, she, she can't make an honest choice. You know, she's going to feel bad if she turns her back on me, but she's obviously probably having feelings of, does she want to stay with me? So in the movie, yeah, I say, you know, it's not fair to make, let her make that choice. So I'm going to make it for her. I'm going to end the relationship. And of course, you know, the next scene is we're getting married, you know, yeah. what the reality so, <laughs> of what happened. Which brings up, uh, you know, some, some questions I have just about like the making of the film and yeah. the choices that are involved in um, editing a documentary. And I know having some personal experience editing documentary footage in the past that yeah. it's a daunting task, at least it can be. And, yeah. and partially because there's a million ways you can edit that footage. Whereas when you go to edit something scripted, you know, you still have a million options, but you got a roadmap. At you got to follow that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when you, that. and when you're looking back at a uh, human life over a certain period of time, yeah. Deciding how to focus, like what to focus on and how to dramatize that. Yeah. Um, it just raises a lot of, a lot of questions. So, of course. I think, I think, and I think you're saying this, that, People in scripted, you know, the the director or the editor, you know, and a lot of times people claim editors are the real auteurs in Hollywood. Um, but I think especially in documentaries, because you don't know with a scripted story that you know the story, at least, and, and the director and the editor are kind of following that story. But at documentarians, they don't really know what's going to happen and they got to find the story along the way. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, uh, you know, Biagio uh, Messina, he's the, the editor on the on the film, you know, with input from from his wife. But that's it. You have to find, you know, out of all this footage, there was, you know, we made a 79-minute movie and uh, out of 300 hours of footage. So it was finding, yeah. there was, you know, 100 other stories we could tell along the way. And so it's, yeah, it's following the ones that, that seem to make the most sense and complement each other and that kind of thing. So for the sake of the film... Mm-hmm. They, you know, your focus and goal was get on Letterman. So yeah. I guess my question would be: Was that what, yeah. how how true is that to real life? Like, how first off, how quickly did you come to that realization? Yeah. And was that um, 
I mean, obviously you stuck with this goal for a long mm-hmm. time and you had reasons along the way that pushed you forward or seemed like yeah. setbacks, but you kept going. But at the beginning, uh, what, tell me a little bit more. I about think, yeah, that. I think, uh, probably <clears throat> the whole thing came about over a year. Again, there was just right away, just dealing with being told you have cancer and then dealing, being told, you know, that this is your outlook. Maybe five years is all you got. So there's a, there, there's a whole year of dealing with that. In the movie, you see me, I make the goal of getting on Letterman a year, about a year after my diagnosis. It's, it's, you know, uh, almost, almost 12 months later. And, uh, there was just, you know, kind of living, I guess, up to that point and, and not knowing what's going to happen after that diagnosis and, and dealing with a lot of the stuff I had to deal with in my intestines and, you know, that, that could be dealt with. There was a lot of that over that year. And you don't dwell, you don't really dwell on the treatment and stuff in the film. Yeah, we, again, I think it was a, a you know, a choice by both myself and the filmmakers. We, you know, when we sat down and talked about what we wanted to do, we wanted to be honest and not just show hey, it's someone chasing what they want to do. We didn't want to just do that, but we didn't want to make some, you know, sad cancer movie where, you know, you just feel bad for the person and they've got this bad goal. So we didn't want to dwell too much on it. We try and touch and say, look, everything you you probably can imagine when someone's told they have cancer, that's that's what I went through, but we're not, we're not just going to show you that to an endless, you know, thing and make, you know, uh, make everyone feel awful. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't want to make that. I'm a comedian uh, as well. I mean, a lot of it growing, I will say the one thing growing up in Chicago, I'm, I'm talking about all this stability and, uh, you know, practicality that, that comes from growing up in the Midwest. The other side of that, I really think is people from the Midwest are very good at laughing at bad things. They're very good about you get bad news. You, you, you maybe you, you soak it in, you cry, you yell, you do all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, the way you get past it is by laughing at it. Uh, growing up, you know, my, my dad is a, a huge drinker. We we dealt with alcoholism, and you know, we laughed about it so much. I mean, it, it would seem probably sick from to, to someone from the outside some of the things we laughed about, but that was how we we dealt with Why it. Why do you think that is a Midwest thing? Well, I haven't noted. I I think I, I joined the Navy right after high school, so I met a lot of people from across the country, and there were, there seemed to be a little shock sometimes when I'd meet people from the, the East Coast or the West Coast that didn't seem to handle things the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and just, you know, a pullback. And I, I think everyone ends up doing that same thing to differing levels, but I, it, it seems, you know, even coming back and doing comedy in the Midwest, people in the Midwest are much easier to laugh at things. They, they don't get as uptight sometimes as maybe people. Yeah. What's on the, the Midwest? Coast why are we doing, why are we like that? I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I think it's the practicality. Let's say, you know, one of the things is it, I think it's built into that settler thing. You know, you, you think, okay, here's the, the settlers came here, but I, there is a, there's another part of that word settle. Like I think people like, why didn't you, when you go to California and San Francisco and, everything was how didn't they keep going like why did they stop here <laughs> like you know there is some like it gets very cold here for for four months of the year yeah. and it's very harsh and and i think you know i don't know you know why are you know jewish people like are very prideful and how funny they are you know what I mean? how many great jewish comics there are and and they like i think they they attribute it to the they've been you know pushed down or held back all these years and that's how they fight back so i, I think there's maybe it's i don't know the weather or the the, right, the we'll, we'll do further investigation <laughs> yeah, i don't any, have the any answer listeners out there have theories Please, about, yeah we'd love to hear some theories uh, about midwestern it. self um you know mocking yeah yeah self-deprecating uh, wh- wh- humor why, in why the it might be i'd be uh, 
I would love to hear explore the theory that further. Time. Yeah, I don't have the answer. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think uh, that was my thing is is you know kind of facing it with the, by laughing at it or not taking it too seriously. And again, you know, just when you look at life, if if I really had only five years, was I just going to be sit around and be sad about that or be angry that I was dealt these cards or why was routine going to come you back? Think what did you think that being on Letterman was going to do for you? Like, I know this yeah. was this was like a big goal for you. You had this since childhood, always yeah. thought. But what did you think was going to happen? Yeah, I just it it was nothing more than feeling like I had en- I would have entered a group that uh, I got to do something that I saw all the the people that I you know liked growing up got to do, and you know that I would. It, it would be if if I got to be there, it was like, OK, you made the right. You you got to the temple. You got to the, the top of the mountain. You right. know, you, you reach the pinnacle of where this is what great comedians get to be on Letterman. And if, if you can prove to them that you deserve to be on there, then then you've accomplished something. I is someone one of the reviews of the movie. We've luckily uh, we've been to, I think, I don't know, five or six festivals so far. Uh, Some kind of. It's kind of an explosion outside. I'm yeah. sure it's fine. We'll be all right. Um, everything's been positive, but there's been one review that was even. It was still positive, but in the end, it said, uh, "If you think the meaning of life is to get on TV, you know that's what this movie's about." And I was like, "Huh. Well, that's a very cynical <laughs> outlook, I think, into what we've been presenting here." But I would. I mean, did you have conversations with your wife where she was like? Okay, so if you get on Letterman, then what? Like, that's not going to change. Like, what's going to? Yeah, you know no, what I, I mean, think, I, yeah. Or did, uh, she, do you have people say like, why are yeah, you trying definitely. so hard to do this? Because like, you're going to be on Letterman. Like, okay, big deal. You know, listen. A lot of my friends are comedians, so I think they just get it. They know that it's. You I know, mean, even if you know, like, even if you think also that Letterman is this great institutional mm-hmm. thing, but in the context of, I'm sure you were put in the position at times where you had to defend why that mattered more than anything else listen i to myself i had to do it but i no never never to anyone outward really this 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 one review that i just saw mm-hmm. it and again maybe maybe people have said that and just not said it to me like why 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 that's what you want to do with the rest of your life is just get on a, a tv show but mm-hmm. to me it, it's so obvious and i think to most comedians they they understand it they know that it's 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 this thing it's like it's like the no one would ask if your mom was like, wow, it's just been a goal. I'll give you an example. My, one of my mom's goals was she's Irish and she wanted to go back to visit Ireland. You know what I mean? She wanted to do that before she died. She's not dead, but I'm saying she wanted to do that before she died. And uh, she got to do it a couple of years ago. But I would have never thought to say to her, what's going to happen once you, do the, yeah, once, once you get back? <laughs> so you get back from the airport, then what? What are you doing now, mom? You know, right, like yeah, I would yeah. never think of yeah. that. And I, I think it's maybe people think it's a, a fame thing or a... Oh, I want people to notice me, and, and I, again, I think comics get it because they know they know what that means to comedians, and 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 uh, you know the, that you've reached something, you, you you've done something, and and it makes all these crappy open mics or everything I did for the first three years, all that hard work I put in, it made it worthwhile to to get to that point. It's like the Super Bowl or or all those these things again. For whatever reason, I guess that that was the shock of it when I read that. I was like. Oh wow! Does someone think that it that it was just I wanted to be on TV or anything like that? And it, it, it it's it's only it's just a dream I had in my mm-hmm. head that for whatever reason that that that's what I wanted to do. And it is, is funny as you say it. My wife she never said anything like that. She actually 
was kind of a little bit not not the one who pushed me but she it was almost her idea in a way she's like listen if you really only had as we started getting back to routine and we're wondering where do you go from here from this you know it's like some of the deeper questions of what what's it all mean and well, how do you want to spend the rest of your life then and um you know you you're, you can't just go through it anymore you got to make something happen here what do you what do you really want to do with your life and uh, when we got to that point, I said, all right, there's got to be, you know, I, I need to go full force on something I want to do with whatever time I have left. And and she said it before I said it. She's she's like, I know what you want to do. And I was like, I knew in my head I was going to say Letterman. And, and I said, what do you think I want to do? And she, she said it. She said, mm-hmm. be on Letterman. And that was it. Uh, and there was no doubt uh, once once that became obvious that you need to spend all your time doing one thing, chasing a, chasing that dream, that that was the dream. And uh, like I said, just from without ever saying those words to her before, her just knowing me and what the things important, you know, in my life was that that, that was going to be what I was going to say. Hmm. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, people have asked me, you know, at, at festivals already, like, OK, what's next? And sure, I have, I have plans now, and especially with the movie, things I want to do and share the movie and, and you know, places I want to play. You know, we were we were showing at the Gene Siskel right across the street is the Chicago Theater, you know how many times I've, I've been in that theater and seen it. And it's, uh, there's something magical about it just as a Chicagoan seeing that, that marquee. Yeah. And of course I want to play there. You know, there's all these other dreams I have that I want to do now, but that was the, the sole focus that if nothing else happened, I wanted to get there and people are like, okay, now what? But in some way it was like, well, I don't know. I don't really, there's yeah. not a now what that was the big thing. And it, and it was worth it on its own. It it had a value. It wasn't, it wasn't a stepping stone to, fame it wasn't a stepping stone to what maybe letterman like you and you'll get a sitcom or maybe you'll you'll get this or more money or none of that it was just that performing on that stage and doing it as a goal in itself of of nothing else coming out of it um again now listen i've made you know there's a documentary and all this stuff about that process and me doing it Mm. but if none of that if this all fell flat it was it was still worth every step of the way just to to fulfill that dream that I had since I was a kid, you know, again, the same way, like I said, I think we all have something we want to do, you know, wherever it is, people who want to climb a mountain or, you know. So when, when you decided that you wanted to, when you had this goal yeah, and you, you started like campaigning with a website and you were handing out flyers at shows and trying mm-hmm. to get people to write emails and stuff. Um, at that point, did you at all think, uh, that could backfire. Oh yeah, yeah. But you, but you decided it was worth taking that risk. Yeah. One of the things that doesn't get shown, and again, we weren't making a documentary at this point. I didn't even have the website up. But after my wife and I had this conversation, and she says, "You need to pull out. You need to do everything. You need to uh, these five year, years, whatever time you have left, needs to be spent making that dream happen." Before moving forward, especially with the website, I had a lot of talks with my friends, Lee and Gary, who were in the film, Gary Cannon and Lee Levine, two comedians who were, you know, close friends of mine. Is this even a smart idea? I had people, listen, my uh, my wife at that point, she, you know, in the movie you see, she opens her own studio, the yoga and dance studio. But when the movie starts, she's working at a, a, a studio, running a, a studio for someone that's an acting studio. And her, her boss is a producer in Hollywood. Uh, at that point and her her boss says well make sure steve doesn't tell anyone he has cancer i mean that's he's not going to get any work no one's going to give him any project 
you know, uh, they're not going to put him on a sitcom or give him auditions because they're going to be worried if he can make it because of his health. Mm-hmm. And so there's like that fear right away. Like, oh, my God, should I? Well, this will probably be the worst idea ever to all of a sudden mm-hmm. say, hey, Idolo, people at Letterman, can you look at me because my time might be short or to start this whole thing called dying to do Letterman. So I had a lot of talks back and forth with my with my friends, my wife. And it's like, OK, this is I knew that. Listen, comedians are cynical. If I was on the other side, I'd be like, who the hell is this guy? That's the starting this project, you know, called mm-hmm. this. Does he just want to be on because he's got cancer? Is that the whole deal? He's just you looking for sympathy. So I knew all those questions would come out. So it took a while. That's, again, part of that first year. Um, fleshing all that stuff out. Do I want to move forward with this? Am I willing to, you know, take the stigma that comes with it? And, uh, you know, in the end, it, uh, I can look back now and say it was all worthwhile. But in, I didn't know at that time. And the one thing that pushed me in the end was it was like, well, screw it. I might be dead in five years. What, what the hell does any of it matter? Why am I worried yeah. about what what reputation I have or <laughs> what people think of me? And, you know, that's all going to be gone. So, you know, now, how silly it is. Now, there are in the entertainment business mm-hmm. there's never like one way to do something right but there are sort of traditional routes that people take to get on the show and yeah. that they do have um people who specifically scout and things like that right yes yes so did you start by trying to do things that way right yeah that, it all kind of comes together again uh, up to that point i didn't know anyone at letterman didn't know again and it's a very letterman itself is a very and i say letterman the whole entity of it is a very east coast new york based thing they have a lot more you know there's west coast comics that get on there's mid midwest comics that get on but it's very if you took a you know a a cross section of it's very much new york comedians Mm. and just by the nature of the show of course the booker lives there in in new york he's going to see a lot more new york comedians um so I had no contact whatsoever with the show. So yeah, the the very beginning, I I just went all out. It was like a shotgun. I did everything I could. I I emailed the show myself, um, you know, and I put up this website asking other people. I mean, to email. did you know like who the booking? I don't think I knew at that, at that point. point. I don't know that I know Eddie Brill is the booker of the show. I don't think when it even started. I don't even think I knew his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, uh, you know, the same way I didn't know. The name of the person who booked some of the clubs I wanted to get into. I just knew that eventually, again, I I had got in every every success I had had in comedy was just by going out and doing a good job, and people would say, "Hey, I'm going to take you to this club with me and introduce you to the guy who does it." And I was sure that's how all yeah, of it was going to eventually and... happen. Um, so yeah, I was very naive. I mean, it, it's naive in the movie when I say I'm going to get on Letterman in a year, even by the traditional route. If they had seen me heard about me and said, wow, this guy is fantastic. We want to have him on. It's very unlikely it would have happened in 12 months. I mean, yeah. even the traditional, right? It's, it's crazy to think that. And you see in the movie some of the greatest comedians of all time talking about how long it took them to get. So right. it's crazy. It's very, I was very naive. Did, now, did um, you received, so you got a bunch of people to email the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you were getting a little bit of attention. Mm-hmm. And you received an email. That, this is in the film. Yeah. You received an email from uh, someone who worked on the show. Yes. Yeah. An assistant to the executive producers. Jill Goodwin. And she uh, basically asks for just contact information to mm-hmm. mail you something. Right. So you don't know, you know, why she's doing this. <laughs> yeah. And then be? eventually you get a letter saying basically 
Well, why don't you? Why don't you? Yeah, the, the, I get a letter uh, finally that comes in, and it's you know it's got uh, in some ways everything I've dreamed of. It, it has the Late Show letterhead on it and everything, and it's in it from the executive producer of the show. Uh, but it's basically just a a, a letter saying you are not going to be on the show. It's going to be impossible to put you on uh, because they it's say it's not going to happen. She said the letter says that lots of people make these sorts make of requests these, right. because you know be, they are in bad conditions like you and and they have a final request and again they're they're taking it as a make a wish kind of thing like oh, i have cancer please right. put me on the show and uh you know again that's of course that's the reaction they're gonna have mm-hmm. uh i don't expect the executive producer to go to my website and take the time to watch my comedy and see that they don't have time the same way every person that writes them and, and says hey i'm in, in a bad condition uh, but I'd like to do this on your show. I'd like to juggle twelve chainsaws, you know, on your show. Yeah. They're not going to go watch that thing. They're they're gonna, uh, you know, they don't have time to do that because they have a system in place of that course. they use, yeah. and they're like, you know, yeah. So, so you get this letter, and it says this is impossible. Mm-hmm. In the film, this word impossible gets uh, <laughs> yeah know, brought on. up a couple times. Yeah, impossible. So, um, at this point. You could have very easily given up this goal. Yeah. But tell me about what. Yeah, I I, I think uh, there was no doubt in my mind that I was uh, I was going to keep going. I at some level, like I said, I understood exactly the letter they were sending me. That's uh, the way it's a. It's the way that they work. I mean, there is a traditional thing in place for this this isn't they're not looking for talent by waiting for people to send them things saying hey i'm in a bad condition here can you take a look at me they're not waiting for that so of course they're gonna say it's not gonna happen you know and and go away you know um so at that point did you so i kind of understood but i I knew that i was gonna keep trying and and screw them i didn't i don't care if you say it's not gonna happen i know it's gonna happen and uh i'm gonna prove you wrong i mean that you know now, at this point in the film, you sort of like shift your attention towards just becoming a better comic because you feel like that's going to be your best way yeah, to get on again, the show. Because you needed to prove to them that you wanted to be on the show because of your ability, not because you were sick or anything right, like that. Right, exactly. So it was obvious they weren't going to, from the letter... I got their attention, and that was the whole idea of starting the website and that, and people even there, so that they would take a look at me. But it was obvious from the letter they were basically saying, "We're not, we're not even going to look at you. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't give attention to things this like way. this. It doesn't work this way. So go back. So again, I, I'm already thinking. Look, I'm good enough to be on the show, but to even prove you wrong more, I'm going to go back out. I'm going to come up with my best stuff, and I'll get it to you another way. You're going to see it, mm-hmm. um, and I'll prove you wrong." Uh, you know, that it's impossible. And again, I, I know that uh, that's just the, the way things work with the show. They, they, they couldn't have said yes at that point. Um, but I, I think at the same point that, that that's what they're, they're doing is they're discouraging people because, you know, they're like, all right, if you, you really want it, here's this, go away and we'll, we'll see if you ever turn up again. You know? Right. Um, and, you know, I knew I was gonna. Uh, so yeah, I just got back to work and was like, okay, I have their attention. Now the next step is just making sure I am good enough to be on the show. So at this point, because you're not really clear about this in the film, mm-hmm. did you sort of stop doing the campaigning? No, yeah, no. You uh, you continued to tell people to like email them and do all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you weren't worried about 
pissing them off well, or I figured, burning a bridge. Or... <laughs> I figured uh, <laughs> I figured after them saying in the letter, it was it's impossible, impossible and you are not going to be on. <laughs> You're I like, figured, well, it can't well, go downhill right, from Where there. can we go? Yeah. I figured that I could only impress them with my perseverance and... Uh, and eventually, again, this is the executive producer saying, this isn't how it works. You're not going to be on. And I know she didn't go to my website and look at my comedy and be like, well, let's see if this guy's good enough. Maybe he's going to. Yeah. I know she didn't do that. So now my thing was, I'm going to go back out. Keep, I'm going to keep making noise and keep trying to become a better comedian. And eventually, the noise is going to be so big that her or someone else with the show is going to watch my mm. comedy. How, however it might happen. And were you worried that they were going to be like, you can't use Letterman's name to promote yourself? You can't, yeah. you know, like all that kind of stuff. I think stuff. I say in the movie, you I thought think it was going to be like a, a cease, a and, cease desist. and desist letter. That's why if, when someone asked for your address, it was obviously I already had my email address. Why right. not just, right. you know, say, hey, Steve, don't, you know, if it's going to be nice, they would have said it already. So I knew something bad was going to happen. Uh, and I really thought it was going to be, yeah, take this down, take down, you can't use the name Letterman, you can't do anything. But. Again, I mean, you know, they, but so they they didn't say anything like that. <laughs> but nothing the was in the letter about said, that. Yeah. Okay. So you keep doing your thing, uh, but you really focus on trying to get your act better. Yeah. There's just, also, um, I think this is after the letter when the some of the more like well-known established comedians are. Yeah. In there. I think they come in. They actually come in. We we tease them a little bit just to to show the audience what it's like to be a comedian or some perspective. Mm-hmm. Um. We show some of the comedians talking beforehand, but you don't realize what the context I'm, yeah is. that I'm talking to them. You just see them like talking heads. Uh, you know, Ray Romano, Brian Regan, Kevin Nealon, Arch Barker. These guys talking about Letterman and what it meant to them. You see that pretty early on in the film, but you don't realize probably till about the time you're talking about now in the movie. Actually, a little later that it's that I actually got to talk to these guys mm-hmm. and ask their advice. And the way that happened is just sort of again word of mouth. People I, yeah. knew that you were trying to get on the show, mm-hmm. and so through some recommendations, you got to meet yeah, some I got people to... and talk about what their experience being on the show was like, how they auditioned, what the process mm-hmm. for them was, and just any advice they could give you on on yeah how how to get on or how to do <laughs> yeah. well in that uh, arena. Yeah. I reached out to every... I got a list. Someone sent me a list of every comedian who had ever performed on Letterman. <laughs> and I reached out to every one of them that I could find a, a contact information really? for. And how uh, about, So this might be a good time to bring up. Yeah. How many comedians... And you mentioned this in the film, but I mean, he doesn't have a stand-up on every day. Yeah, I think I guess <laughs> in the movie, I guess 12. And when I say 12... That means probably 12 original comedians maybe a year, if if that. Doing again, stand-up. Yeah. Again, he's probably, it ends up being, you know, out of 52 weeks, he probably really only shoots 40 weeks, and he doesn't have one on every week, so that, you know, probably knocks it down to probably in the high 20s that he has, and then some of those are comics who've already been on. So it's it's right. a low number. I think yeah, I guess 12. I don't actually know the number, but I, I'll bet I'm, I'm pretty close to. So if anyone's counted... It. That would be good. Yeah, let, let us, us know. know. Let, let us, us know. know that. If Eddie Brill, if you're listening, <laughs> he would he would be the man that keeps the stats. Right. <laughs> so that gives a little perspective of the uh, the magnitude of the yeah how hard it is task. Yeah. So um, you went and talked to these people. It looks like most of you like went to their ha- houses or met them. In, you, you know, it's funny. I think Ray Romano I talked to in his office on the Warner Brothers lot, uh-huh. uh, and I think uh, Kevin Nealon and uh, Jim Gaffey and I talked to them in their trailers. You That's know, what I, like yeah, it looks like thing. trailers. They're, on, they're set. on set. 
Uh, Arch Barker I talked to at the Improv. I think the rest of them are at comedy clubs. Yeah. Yeah. So how did they feel about not only just talking to you, but also being filmed to maybe be in this yeah. thing that you're doing? Listen, again, like I said, <laughs> I contacted everyone I could. I'm So I'm, I, I'm guessing, I'm going to say probably close to 100 people I set stuff out to asking to, would you, you know, let me interview you about this and that kind of thing. And um, there's probably only three comedians who agreed that didn't make the film. And uh, so that shows what great guys that ended up in the film. Those are guys that notoriously, or not notoriously, but have a reputation of being great guys that those guys agreed to do it. Because there are plenty of people who just didn't even respond. Yeah. Or responded, said they'd do it. And then when time came to push a shove and me interview them, they, they, they backed out or yeah. were unresponsive again. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of people who didn't do it. The, the ones that you see in the movie, uh, did do it. Daniel Tosh did it as well. He's one of the first person, uh, first people I interviewed. Uh, but the sound, uh, again, this is when I was doing it myself. I interviewed him, uh, myself and the sound got all messed up. Uh, got, was rubbing against his, oh, yeah. his shirt. So we, we couldn't use it in the movie. And we actually asked him once we got into the editing, it was, you know, by this time, like, four years you later, some ADR? will you, will you either let me <laughs> loop, oh, yeah. loop your comments you loop or your, do another interview or do another interview. And he, uh, he just didn't have time with the show because yeah. we had a time limit that we needed it to make it happen. And, and, uh, and he couldn't do it, but I've run into him since. And he he's told me how much he wanted to do it and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then there's just a couple other comics who've done the show that just didn't, you know, we didn't have time to show everyone in the movie. So the, but the basic feedback you get, as shown in the film is that it's really hard to get on the show. <laughs> very hard. <laughs> it's a very time consuming process. I think Raymond Mano says it took him 11 years, 11 years. from when he first like auditioned yeah. to be on the show. Yeah. To actually I think doing it. just, um, that's one of those when I see the, see the movie. Yeah. I think he says he wanted, it, it, it was a big deal for him to be on Letterman and he, he says it took him 11 years. So I don't know. He might even be saying like, that was his goal starting oh, out right, was to get yeah. on it. And you know what I mean? So I don't know if from the first audition to the final one was 11 years, but I know that was his goal and it took him 11 yeah. years to get it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I don't want to, yeah. he, he might've only got his first, yeah, right. Yeah. Got his first audition eight years in, you know, he, to get to that point for the first audition. You also you get, see? you also get the sense from these guys, how much it meant to them and how much it still would mean that they like, they would die to be on it right now. Again, again Kevin even Elin though they never done it. Book, you know? Yeah. So I, I thought that, you know, it was really give a really interesting perspective again yeah. on, on the this goal because the whole process and most entertainment type things is a mystery and yeah. confusing, even if you're in it. So. Right. It's crazy. Uh, and again, I didn't know beforehand. I hadn't read articles on these guys and selected them because I knew Letterman meant a lot to them. I only yeah. find this out as I'm interviewing how much it meant to these guys as well. Uh, and you know, I think Romano and Neilan had both done the tonight show as well with, with Johnny Carson. Mm -hmm. And they both said Letterman, you know, was the, was the thing for him. So that, you know, that's a big, big deal. I didn't know that before interviewing him at one point. Uh, it's not in the movie, but unprompted, uh, Gaffigan's just talking about what it meant and how many times he had auditioned. And he says, uh, he says, I was dying to do Letterman. Like he's, you know, I don't even know that he knew that we were calling the project oh, that. Yeah. And he just, he just literally says it, you know, I was dying to do that show. Uh, and it, you know, he's an Indiana guy. It meant a lot to him. 
you know, to, to be on Dave's show. And so, yeah, it was, it, it felt good to me, you know, the same way, you know, the question we had earlier about, does it seem silly that what are you going to do now that you're on? These guys all got it. I mean, they, they understood what it meant. You know yeah. what I mean? So that's why I think, yeah, I, you know, I've got kind of a close perspective because, you know, a lot of my friends are comics or I'm in the business. So it, it's obvious that it means a lot, you know? So from, from that point, um, you, you do end up getting contact with the booker for the show. Right. Yeah. A, a, a club owner from San Francisco. I, by this time, by the time I get the diagnosis, I'm living in LA and a club owner in San Francisco reaches out on my behalf. He knows the booker. He hears about the project and he knows the booker for Letterman. He reaches out and says, Hey, this is Steve Mazon's a funny guy. You should take a look at him. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's worth looking at. And so, yeah. Now, the the letter you got that said impossible, that was in 2006. Um, at what point did you make first contact with Brill? Yeah, it's not long after that. It's in that first year of the of the project. Yeah. I mean Yeah, I don't I'm I'm awful with dates. Yeah. Like as far as the thing, I mean, we but it was... we yeah, we you know, they're all checked and I think in the bottom you know, it says when all these big things happen in the movie, what yeah. month and, you know, where these, you know, things were documenting when they were filmed. Uh, but it's in that first year. It's soon after the impossibility that, you know, probably three or four months after that letter, within that time frame, I get contact with Eddie, so you, which is the traditional route. So he requests some um, uh, material to review mm-hmm. to see if you're maybe a fit. Yeah. He's, he's now saying, OK, I'll look. And you submit some uh, material on, uh, was it video or just audio? The f- no, no, no. Yeah, it was video. Video on DVD. It was on DVD. And uh, I think I might have put it on the internet, too, so that he could see it as a link. You know, I was, like, going to make everything. And I kind of cheated, too. I, uh, I knew you usually send a five-minute set, mm-hmm. you know, because that's what you're going to do on the show. But I figured, I kind of pulled the card that I was like, okay, I've made all this noise. This guy's going to take a look at me. I could probably give him more than five minutes, you know? So like the, let's say a, nor, a comic usually sends him five minutes and he doesn't like it. The next step is he either says, look, you're never going to be good enough for the, not good enough for the show, but you're just not the right comic that we'd have on. Right. So no, and you know, kind of go away or this five minutes isn't good, but keep working at it. Send me when you got a new five minutes. So then, it, you know, you're in the process and, and now you got to get a new five minutes to him. I figured on that first one, I, I could probably send him 10 minutes and he'll watch the whole thing because mm-hmm. I've made so much noise. And you thought that would help you because it give you a wider net yeah, of exactly. to that try it, to catch. Exactly. If he didn't like something in the first five minutes, here's an extra five minutes right. that he might like. And uh, it didn't matter. That strategy didn't work. But, <laughs> I mean, he did watch the whole 10 minutes. I will say that. But, so uh, he, he – this has played out very dramatically in the film. But the short <laughs> story is that um, – because I still want to, I have so many other things to talk about, yeah. and we're we're running out of time. So he uh, he gives you some feedback eventually, mm-hmm. yeah. and says, you know, you're not ready to do this. But he, yeah. he I I found this fascinating. This uh, the three things mm, yeah. he says not to do, yes. on which Letterman. are uh, no characters, um, no acting out, no physicalness. And what's the third? Do you have no long stories? No long stories. Where usually when you see a comedian, they do you know probably four or five different topics on Letterman. Like when yeah, they're doing uh, a five uh, minutes, right? Yeah. In that five minutes, they're talking about five different things. You know, they segue into different things. And a lot of my jokes, 
you know, again, the one we played here, the lost cat, that's a, you know, a two minute joke on one idea. Mm-hmm. And he was basically saying, yeah, that's, that's usually not what we have. Now there are exceptions. Everything he told me, I knew I'm a, I'm a fan of Letterman. When I just <laughs> say I like Letterman, I'm not just saying, Oh, I enjoy watching him at night. And he's one, the one I, I watch that show. I study it. I know when Dave really likes someone, <laughs> I know what I watch. What he says to people afterwards. I I watch the comedians. I I know you know history stuff from the show, and uh, everything he said to me. I had an example of someone who had done exactly that on the show. Right. Um. But again, you can't. I can't go back and be like, nope, you're wrong. This happened. You know. Again, right. that's, that's not going to be a good for the. Relationship. I just thought that was such an interesting kind of like breakdown of here's here's what we do. Right. You know. Um, yeah. And. Later on, so then you start having kind of a dialogue back and forth. Right. I've of, started the process the traditional way, basically. And so he, you send him some different stuff. Mm-hmm. You try to like. I try and mimic the his stuff advice. that he liked from the first set. He liked, you know, uh, you know, uh, one the one thing he really liked was a very short joke, uh, and so I just try and replicate that. I keep doing that for years, sending him DVDs with five minutes of jokes like that joke. And again, you and, know, and at a certain point, you just not get any response from him. Yeah, no. Eventually, years go by. You know that my year goal passes, and then years go by, and he's not even giving me feedback anymore. He's not even responding to let me know he got the DVD. I don't even know if stuff's getting to him. So yeah, that goes a, a long time. But you continue to have the goal. You're, mm-hmm. And I would assume during this time, you're just performing a lot in general. Exactly. And yeah. Were you touring still at this? Yeah, time? touring the country. Yeah, performing in comedy clubs. And you know, when I had a new five minutes that I thought was like the initial notes he gave me, you know, like oh, well, this seems. You know, he said these are letter. This is a Letterman esque thing. This Dave would like this. And so did, I was trying to replicate that. And anytime I had stuff like that, I would send it to him. And so. did you? This whole time, were you sort of like branding yourself as the dying to do Letterman no. guy? In fact, you know, uh, one thing, to, to tell the story that we've told or that I've shared with you today, I have to tell people I have cancer. The minute you say cancer or I have those words, I have cancer, on stage, it changes the whole dynamic of being on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you you all of a sudden wouldn't know if... Uh, are people just feeling sorry for you so they're laughing? Or... You know, it, it just changes everything. So I never shared that with... If I ever shared it with people, it would be at the very end of my set. Uh, would you so, material about it? Not really. I would just share it at the end and say, hey, listen, you know, I, I have a joke you see in the movie about testicular cancer. Right. Um, so I would sometimes preface it with that or talk about that, about getting what, what you have to do, you know, when they start checking for cancer everywhere. You know, so I would tie it into that, but it wasn't anything I'd specifically written about that. And then I would tell people, if you think I'm good enough, yeah, please, e- you know, mail email Letterman. But in those years where I wasn't getting a response and I was thinking this dream might be over, there there were you know months where I wouldn't mention it or tell anyone about mm-hmm. it. And a lot of times I would, you know, I would. It uh, wasn't like the first line on your bio. No, no, exactly. No, in fact, it was never in my bio. And there was my comedy website, and I had a Dying to do Letterman website. And on my own website at the bottom, it said, you know, if you've heard about this project, Dying Dude Letterman, click here, and it would take you to the other page. But it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a big thing. Like I said, I, I think I was, you know, I'm sure part of it was like, I don't want to be labeled as the guy that never got on Letterman. <laughs> you know, and that was, <laughs> that was the thing I, I made my thing. I always wanted to prove, again, and I, 
it's important to me to say I knew without a shadow of a doubt. And again, people from the outside can tell me oh, you're, you're a little crazy or a little egocentric, but I knew I was good enough to be on Letterman. I knew that someday it was going to happen, whether this project came up or not. I knew and that eventually. Still, and it's, it's just interesting that you still knew that after being told it was impossible yeah. by the executive producer <laughs> yeah. show and the booking person saying you're not ready and then ignoring you. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. you just, it's just interesting to me that you had that drive and you didn't. Yeah. It's you probably a dumb, dumb stubbornness, but again, it, Sometimes it seems it's to have worked for me. Sometimes it's just what it takes to yeah. make things happen. I mean, a lot of people would have stopped at the letter. A lot of people would have stopped after, you know what Not I mean? Not hearing he gets, anything for years. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, well, Gaffigan says it in the movie. You know, Jim Gaffigan says, uh, you know, kind of the way I feel. Uh, you, you look at your comedy career and you're like, okay, I want to be on Letterman. I'm the kind of comic he would have on. <laughs> right. I have the material that could be on Letterman. What are we waiting for? You know, that's exactly how I felt before this Dying to Do Letterman ever came up. Just that I was waiting for it to happen versus chasing it. Right. And so even all through it, when I'm getting told no and impossible, I'm still confident it's going to happen. It's just, you know, I, I haven't proven it to them yet. Now, there's some sub subplot, I guess. It's hard. It's weird to yeah, say that yeah. about, like, about the a movie. person's yeah. life. Like, <laughs> there's, yeah. There's a subplot, subplot. to the A storyline <laughs> about um, your uh, wife. Uh, yeah, Denise. Wanting to have children mm-hmm. and so um there is a little bit of kind of like it is presented a little bit like where's your focus here can we right. like, focus on this for a while i think yeah i think as much as she knew right away what that i would want to focus on letterman mm-hmm. again she she stuck with me knowing that i might be gone and as a, a woman in her 30s i'm sure she's thinking this may be the only time i have to have kids uh let, you want to focus on that. I want, I want to focus on this mm-hmm. uh, as we move forward. And uh, again, listen, we have medical bills stacking up. Comedians don't make good money in the first place, so adding kids to it didn't seem yeah. like a great idea to me. And you kind of see that in the movie; it plays out a little bit. Although it's, I don't, it's never financially like a great time to have a kid. I don't. That's think, probably. what you and every <laughs> other person have answered that argument with. Right. Everyone who has had kids has told so me. So my my but question about that. <laughs> uh well one of my questions this documentary is very i mean it's like lo-fi in a lot of ways because it i mean it's not shot like super high definition yeah, like no, crisp it's, it's very like kind of home yeah uh, there's a bunch of footage cheap cameras so used in it. uh like when you and your wife are having a conversation about you know i was thinking maybe we should talk about having a baby like somebody's filming that yeah, yeah. so can you tell me about what i mean like how how much not that like things were staged but how did you how did you have those kind of conversations yes. on camera in a natural so there way? was a lot there here's what happens there's a lot of you see in the movie diary cams where it's either myself or uh denise just setting up the camera and turning on ourselves and that's right. uh joe cabiaggio the the filmmakers they can't be there for everything and things happen in real time so even when i get the call from eddie brill i see mm. you know <laughs> when i have to call him back I set up the camera and just tape myself. There's not anyone there filming. It's just a one. But, uh, so uh, camera. sometimes they they were there. Like yes, when we you. knew, and you could see it in the the, the big scenes that happen in are um, when I have uh, doctor's appointments. They follow me. I'm taking scans and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right. These are things that are scheduled that they can. I can say, hey, this is going to happen. 
you know, do you guys want to be there? And then they can schedule it and be there with, you know, a camera or two sometimes. Uh, the conversation I have with my uh, my friends Gary and Lee after I get the feedback from uh, Eddie Brill the first time saying that he doesn't like anything, there's two cameras there. So there's, there's events that they know are going to happen that they can come and film. And when they can't be there, it's just, Denise holding the camera and there's sometimes Gary's even holding the camera. There's the, the Iraq, there's the Iraq footage where, you know, there's an explosion. That's another comedian holding the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that one that you're talking about where we're talking about having kids, there was a diary cam I had of talking about that saying, you know, all right, Denise and I are having this conversation and here's how I feel about it. And, uh, here's how she feels about it. And, uh, Biagio or Joke or maybe both of them, you know, when they saw it, they're like, okay, don't talk anymore about it. We want to get you guys talking about this. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like, well, I'm leaving, you know, tomorrow. And they're like, we're going to get time off. We'll <laughs> we'll come over. We'll we'll film you guys, you know. And they'll be like, you know, do whatever you're doing. And, you know, Denise can come in and you could talk about what you were talking. So, yeah, there's, there's kind of a, like a hold off on that yeah. thought until well, it's kind of like are. like when you get when you we're here at my in my kitchen recording this podcast and like when you get here i always feel bad like especially if i'm interviewing people i don't know like i met you very briefly once yeah. before this and it's like you want to be hospitable and conversational but i'm also like i don't want to talk about anything of course yeah i don't want to yes. spoil it yeah. from right right things so i would imagine there might have been times like that too where you were like should I talk about this thing or oh, wait until the camera's around? Like. There's, listen, as a, it's easy always, especially now, to look back uh, on the things I did for this project and the things I taped for the project. There were many times I was ready to throw the camera against the wall or Joe Biagio would call and they'd hear something and they'd be like, you need to do... You need to do a diary cam. You need to talk about that. And I'd be like, mm. that's the last thing I want to do. I just got bad news. I just got this. And I don't want to turn the camera on and, and tape that. So... Uh, yeah, there's stuff like that, but you know, if you've if you've said we're gonna go forth and do this, that you got to make some of those concessions. I don't want to have, you know, I of course I, I'm you I can be laugh about it now. I want to be yeah, but I know there's times where I look like a I'm being a dick to my wife because you know you you see two people having a conversation and you know uh, you see what a great person she is and I'm being selfish because of my dream, you know. So. Um... In addition to all that kind of footage, there's some there's narration by you in the mm-hmm. film, and then yeah. there's also some some pieces where you're doing the narration that were shot that were are definitely like shot more uh, high quality. Yes, I, I don't know. Yeah, I hate, I, maybe that's the wrong term because no, there's something nice right. about uh, of all kinds of right. They all have their <laughs> own quality to call but, one um, better than a. But definitely more like uh, lit, like yes. studio yes. kind well of shot lit, yeah. material, and some of it's sort of metaphorical that kind of like ties everything, everything uh, yeah. in the film together. I think yeah, one of the things we dealt with uh, afterwards, and again, you, you can always have a story, but any movie or whatever, it, the story's only as good as the storyteller. And thank God, Joe Biagio had this idea that to bring all the footage we had together, they wanted to have a centerpiece of me kind of offering some narration of what's going on some filling in the blanks of the times where we didn't have a camera and things happened and a reflection kind of uh, and did they things. did they kind of do a rough edit of material before, before yeah that so you could kind of see yeah and they could see well we really we need something to fill in this gap between here and here yes yeah and uh i think it was one of those things even when we came up with the idea 
you know, we make it kind of look like a comedy club that I'm in a comedy club talking, but it was something that the, the Biagio had a friend build in their studio out there mm-hmm. and just, you know, they're so talented. They can light it the right way. So it looks great and moody and, and that kind of thing. But, uh, when it came up, none of us knew, okay, is this, this is a kind of a gamble. Is it going to work? Is it going to look cheesy that I'm talking in between all these events that all of a sudden there's these, you know, in the moment diary cams. And then all of a sudden here's me, you know, reflecting on it. We don't know if it was going to work or not. And, you know, the only thing we can go by is how people are reacting to it and they seem to like it. So, but at the time, listen, it's me talking about how things went many times and, you know, that, that feels weird anyways. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, we did that over three days after, uh, you know, in post-production and, uh, so let, let's get into uh, full-on spoiler territory here. Here it comes. As we Tune are, out if you are wrapping up. So, yes, I, I encourage people Steve to see Steve died film. on June 25th. <laughs> Again, the, the upcoming opportunity is Thursday, June 30th at what Gene time? Sisko Film Center at 8 p.m. 8 p.m. And you, you'll be I'll be there, there for a Q&A afterwards. Yeah, if anyone has the answers to the questions we brought up. Yes. But I'll be answering yes. questions as well. So I highly encourage encourage people to do that um yeah, thanks and i'm assuming they'll probably be uh, the film is looking for distribution at this point or yeah we have i think in the next uh you know people can go to that we still have a website about the movie now called dyingjudoletterman.com and people can sign up for a mailing list and we'll let you know when it will be distributed or showing so you're currently kind of doing the festival thing exactly. right now and, exactly but eventually uh, maybe it'll have a wider release. That's uh, our plan. And we got some, some good things coming up, I think, in the next couple of weeks. Some some good news coming out that I can't share yet. But okay. uh, right. if you sign up for the mailing list, we'll, we'll let you know as soon as it yeah. happens. Maybe one day people can stream it on Netflix exactly. and all that we'll kind be, of stuff. I promise that will happen so, eventually. Um, eventually. Okay, so if, uh, if you don't want to have everything spoiled, thank you for listening to the show. Yeah, but thank you. For the rest of us, we're going to talk for just a little bit longer. So, uh, okay... All right, okay, I think they're gone. <laughs> they're probably, they they're probably they might have been gone if a long you didn't time get ago. The I don't know. Yeah, turn <laughs> I don't know. But um, so, turns out, you get to be on Letterman. I get to be on Letterman. I get to realize the dream after, yeah, uh, almost five years of the project. Right. And um, in the, I won't go into all the details of, around that, but um, I was wondering... In the film, you don't actually see the Letterman performance completely. There's like little pieces of it. Yes. And then during the end of the film, um, there's they show there's this particular uh, joke or bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. That I guess we agreed is the proper <laughs> term that um, Brill liked, and so he asked you to work on that, and uh-huh. you sort of like workshopped it and tried to take some notes that he gave you, which was right. another like uh, interesting thing to me that like there, um, it just seems like a weird kind of situation where you're you're like being asked to alter your yeah. creation for, but I guess that happens in every art yeah, form again. to some degree. If you're making a sure. film. And there's a studio, you know, if this, if this movie gets picked up by some big studio and they're like, we're going to put it out, they might say, right, but you got to shoot this thing to go with it. Or right. you got to like, we don't like, we don't like the narration. Do so do Get it this way. Exactly. Or, you know, um, or they spend half a million dollars on a title sequence or, you know, <laughs> like you never yeah. know. You never so know like, or, but you know, I think it seems a little striking watching it because you're like, 
Well, that's like the museum person telling the painter to change the color right. of his painting yeah, exactly. so that it'll fit in the show better. You right. know, or like the musician. You get, yeah. Your initial Again. reaction is like, well, what's this guy saying? Right. I should change my joke. Well, you it, know? yeah, it goes back to not to look. It's pulling it back to the Ed Sullivan theater. But, you know, Ed Sullivan telling the doors they can't say, you know, higher or whatever. It's, it's right, all right. this kind of, it's, you know, you feel, am I being censored? Am I being changed? And But you worked sure. on it. You try, you try I tried to things. do what he says. Yeah. Um, and... So and eventually that's the the uh, bit that you end up doing it is the on bit, the show. Yeah, and I and I end up luckily. It's funny we're talking about this, but luckily I get to do it the original way. He he offers yeah. some suggestions that I even say in the, in the movie they're not going to work only because and that's not out of cockiness that he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's out of that joke. It t- had taken a long time already to get to that point. I had tried mm-hmm. all these things to get it to the point that he where he had seen it the first time. It had already been around for seven, eight months of me doing, trying all the different ways. And and I knew it was, I knew it would work if he gave me that chance to do it. I knew it would work on, you know, yeah. uh, uh, TV when, when, he, when he'd give me the chance. And if he wanted to change things, I knew it would only make it worse. But again, if, if well, I could have got it to work, this is work, sort of like a it. fascinating thing about you is that, you know, relating to all the other times where you maybe most people would have given up, but like, he's like, yeah, you could pretty much be on the show if you do this one thing. And then you're like, well, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'll just, you know, that's uh, an interesting <laughs> thought. Yeah. Uh, but so in the yeah. film, you see that you're on Letterman, but mm-hmm. then, uh, we actually see this joke or a series of jokes, yeah. uh, in a bunch of clips as you were like evolving it over time. I thought it was yeah. a really interesting kind of, uh, choice. I'm wondering, how involved you were in that kind of like stylistic choice in the film. Yeah. You know, this is another thing out of, uh, it's one of those things the the style came out of necessity. Almost. Um, we originally wanted to put the, the whole bit in and, and show it from Letterman, but then we knew we would have to get their permission mm-hmm. and, you know, festivals were coming up and we wanted to, you know, start showing it. And uh, we didn't know, okay, does it need to be seen? And then we, you know, we shared with a couple other filmmakers what we had so far. And they're like, no, no, you definitely need, people want to see. That you were on the, See the joke. <laughs> and they got to at least see, at some point they got to see Steve and Dave right. together. Like that movie. Even if you don't see the joke, there's got to be the Dave introducing yeah. you and then that. And we decided, okay, what can we show without asking What's fair use? What can we show without having to get their permission? Mm-hmm. And so there's, I, I, I'm just going to throw the number to it, but I'm not positive of the number. You can show one minute of Letterman's show without his permission. Uh, and so rather we knew the joke is, is four and a half minutes. Right. So we were not just going to show one minute of it and then uh, no more. So what we did was we show it. You, what's edited in the movie is me doing all the practice sets up to Letterman that I had mm-hmm. taped. And we intersperse that with the actual set I do on Letterman, and we only show less than we're allowed to. It's it has it's a fascinating yeah. kind of effect. So yeah, it's like one it, of those things that it works out yeah. great, but it was really just necessity that kind of made yeah. us do that. Because I, I remember, like on your website, you can watch the whole yeah, Letterman you can see clip, the whole thing. and so mm-hmm. I, I watched that after seeing the film, and uh, you know, thinking back on it, I was like, you know, it really was better without like the way they did it. Yeah. worked out better and i i was wondering if some of it was like a logistical issue of like permission and stuff yeah but that's, it that's, really it serves the film I, better this way it, I think. it points back to it really is it's a reflection on everything you've seen up to that point yeah it, to see me practicing it there's some changes in it 
that that I make that you you end up seeing in that that final version that gets on Letterman. And again, it's you know it's almost uh, again it, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie because of that because it's something we we had to do and it ends up actually working better because yeah you get to reflect on everything you've seen you see me working hard on this joke mm-hmm. uh in the in the week before letterman so did you have any uh interactions with letterman other than what we see <laughs> just no, what you see just very it's just yeah very, yeah just you know he's notoriously reclusive and uh i've heard stories of uh his favorite comic has only talked to him for 30 seconds and it's always that kind of thing great job thanks for being here yeah. that kind of thing um, and and you also make a point of mentioning in the film that your uh, cancer was never brought up as a part of the thing that yeah. that you really were there mm-hmm. um, just as a, as comedian. a comedian. Yeah, the uh, again uh, a important thing for me. I've done a couple interviews since where like you know the <laughs> the cheesy I don't want to name names but the cheesy morning show like uh that they make fun of on Saturday Night Live the the guy and girl cheap version of Regis and Kathy Lee and you know they've been like oh my god does uh, uh Letterman obviously knows about the movie and what does he think he might be the one guy <laughs> the way he's so notoriously reclusive and removed from things hmm. I'm not saying I think he probably knew the whole situation it was never said on that show or he never said anything to me um, none of the producers, I was never, it was never mentioned the whole day I was there at Letterman by anyone. Right. But he might not have known. I mean, he's yeah. that kind of guy that he's so far removed. I, I have a friend who used to write for the show for three or four years and never met him. And she was one of the writers for the show. You know, he's kind of removed. There's the, the writing goes from him to the head writer and then the head writer takes it up with the producers and that kind of thing. So he's, he's removed from something. So I don't know if they ever bothered Dave with like a, Hey, there's this, right, comedian. by the way, yeah, <laughs> yeah that wants to do cancer. And he's got this website and this kind of, listen, comedians are on at the end of the show. They're almost an afterthought. You know what I mean? It's not, uh, you know, one do, of is, the prime things. Do you know, things. or is it your impression that when you went out there and performed or when anyone goes out there and performs, it's his first time even seeing, the material yes oh I, I i don't know that for sure but i would yeah i would uh i want to say the word guarantee but i would say 99 percent. i'm positive that's the first time he's seeing any of mm-hmm. that yeah i don't think he gets a run through of what it's about in fact he does a if i think you could see it if you youtube it he does a very funny introduction on me because uh he mentions that i'm coming up i have shows coming up in utah that I wanted to plug the first, the first guy, I just happened to be going back to Utah after the the show. And the first guy to ever headline me was this club owner in Utah. So I really wanted to plug those shows. It meant a lot to me to have his name mentioned or his club's name mentioned on Letterman and Letterman ends up going, you know, just as he's reading it, it's, I think the first time he he's even read the words, words, he's like Utah. He's like, well, that's a hotbed of comedy. And he goes on (laughs) for 20 or 30 seconds making fun of Utah and comedy in Utah. And it's really funny. And I think that just points to the fact that, yeah, look, it, that show is a routine to him. He shows up and, and gets things, you know, it, it's all laid out for him. They, the producers take care of it, and then he does the show. So, yeah, I, I think there's a chance he might not even have known that day. I'm, I'm sure he knows at some level uh, what's going on now just because the, the movie's getting a little heat and that kind of thing. But, uh, so, yeah, yeah who knows? Someone might have asked him about it. Or <laughs> Yeah, have you seen the right? Did, do you know did, uh So th- you didn't have any communication with his show or anything about the film, making the film? No, they did ask us, Eddie, you know, the booker asked us not to shoot at the uh, at the theater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the filmmakers came. Of course, there's another thing. It's scheduled. So, obviously, they came to New York and shot a lot of the stuff you see in New York. Um, 
we did uh, we did sneak a camera up to the green room where you know there's a shot actually in the movie of me getting ready mm-hmm. uh, for the show, and then when I come come back after performing, uh, we weren't supposed to shoot that, but we did, and no one said anything yet about it. So yeah. <laughs> we'll hopefully get away with that. <laughs> okay, um, so what about uh, epilogue here? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure there are going to be some questions that people have after seeing the film that they'd like to have answered. Yeah. I mean, I I'm can, sure you've already been answering some a couple of them. What are of, they? Yeah, a couple <laughs> of the big ones we get at the, the Q&As at the you know festivals have been, uh, uh, is Denise pregnant? Because I guess it is a subplot in there. Has she gotten pregnant? Do we have kids yet? Uh, the answer is no on both ends. We're still trying. We've been, tried new, uh, you know, different fertility treatments and that kind of thing. Uh, we've looked into adoption, that kind of thing. So we're, you know, we're moving forward, but it hasn't happened yet. Um her, you know, uh, Denise seems she gets a lot of the questions in the in the, in the festival. <laughs> in the, yeah. She's, I think, she's the gravity of the movie, kind of, you know. Or I'm all over the place with this dream. She's kind of the stability. Um, what What's happened for me? Has it opened up new doors since? And of course, it has. Uh, places that uh, uh, I was headlining, I you know, already I'm getting more pay. Places that I wasn't headlining, I'm headlining. It's opened up more clubs. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not Johnny Carson in the eighties where you, you go on that show and have a great set. You have a sitcom the next day. It's not that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's helped my career a lot. And, uh, you know, um, how is your health? Yeah. Health is great. That's the other thing. That's always, it's so <laughs> funny that that's always, you know, secondary to me. Um, yeah, I have scans coming up next month. I'm, I'm confident they're going to be good. I've, you know, look, I'm, I've been extremely lucky. There was a year where I, really felt like a cancer patient, you know, or I was having surgery and scans and, uh, stuff sticked in me all the time. And, you know, they were trying to trace and find out where it was coming from. And, uh, you know, that, and now every three to six months when I go to scans or blood tests, then I feel like, okay, I've got cancer, but because I feel healthy, I can forget about it for two and a half months at a time. You know what I mean? I mean, it's always Mm -hmm. in the back of my head, of course, that at what point are these tumors going to, you know, start growing faster. But I've been very lucky that they haven't, they've grown very, very slowly over these, these past five years and my liver operations fine. Um, and, uh, you know, the worst I get is, you know, I'm, I'm maybe fatigued more often than I, I would be without the stuff. And I get some bad cramps sometimes, but again, compared to the other people I see when I go in, you know, that's, that's the, the paradox here. There's no treatment or cure for what I have which is bad in the end, but because there's no treatment, I don't have to, you know, they're not trying radiation. They're not trying chemotherapy, which would be things that would be, you know, leaving me in an awful state all the time. Right. Um, so I've, I've been extremely lucky, you know, and I, I think I say in the movie, you know, I'm not, a, I'm, you know, kind of a, not a, a incredibly spiritual guy, but you know, I like, I do like to think that because I've been chasing this dream that that's kind of kept everything at bay. You know, it's a nice little thought I like to keep in my head. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, a big question I have for you is, did focusing on this help you deal with the cancer? Yeah, I think it, I think it's the thing we talked about earlier about making fun of laughing at bad situations. It's, it's just the same thing. It's changing the focus to it. Instead of being like, oh, wow, you know, uh, you got cancer, you, you just start laughing at it and making fun of it. And all of a sudden, it doesn't seem as important anymore, the same, same way that... Uh, the cancer has turned into okay this dream to to get on letterman and and that's really the focus anymore so uh you know so i'm not a date guy people always say you know i'll run into people and they'll be like i got diagnosed on september 5th 1989 you know and i had surgery on 
I don't remember any of the dates. I mean, that's yeah. actually one of the nice things about, about the movie is sometimes <laughs> I get to Reminder. see the timeline because I'm like, why would anyone focus on these days? Like, I, I know the day I was on Letterman. I know that. What easily. day was that? That was uh, September 4th, 2009. All right. And then it aired five days later. It was a great week. Actually, <laughs> no, they, it aired the 4th. It, we shot it on the 1st. Okay. It was like, uh, that's people ask me, if, if did it live up to what I expected it would be? Now we say that, you know, you, when you're a kid, you have these... There's something you want for Christmas, and you, you imagine how great it's going to be, like a you know, an Atari or a Sega or something. You know, I'm trying to think of the big gifts I wanted uh, growing up, and it, they never, you know, you always get bored with it after a while. Uh, but that day of being on Letterman, the whole week actually exceeded everything I had dreamt about or imagined over the years since being 12. You know, it was even better than I had imagined. And uh, we taped on a Monday, a little you know thing you don't get to see in the movie. We taped it on a Monday. And it didn't air till Friday. So I really got a Letterman week versus just a day to enjoy yeah. the whole thing. So it was, yeah, it was even better, like I said. You said you had studied Letterman and knew <laughs> all that. So what, what did you pick up from his reaction yes. to your performance? So what I say is, like, he has uh, – I hope this never gets back to him. Um, because, yeah, then he could – you know, uh, stop doing it, and or, or well, be, if he makes to, it to the very end of this long yeah, well, that interview, would be great. I think he's invested yeah, exactly. enough he's that if someone sends him this, the uh, <laughs> just yeah. But he says uh, he's very noncommittal on what he says. Like they have uh, ventriloquists on, or magicians. They'll have like ventriloquist week, or magician week, or impressionist week on the show. And it started a few years ago, and it's almost like there's a little wink to it, like. I know like Letterman doesn't like he's like the it's like when he has snob. to interview uh Paris Hilton yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he'll come over and I watch what he says to these people. He'll he'll say something very non-committal to about himself. He'll he'll say like the audience loved you or <laughs> thank you so much for being here. That kind of thing. He won't and, and if he yeah. likes someone, he it's personal then. He'll say what he thinks. So he'll give a compliment. Uh, versus passing it off to someone else, and so yeah, it was a big deal. Like as he a, says, great, I finish my right. set, and he says uh, he comes up and he says, "Very funny, Steve Mazon, uh, great set." And then and then even when we went to commercial, yeah, he said one more time, he said, "Very funny." And uh, I saw my name on a cue card, and I was like, "Can I have that cue card?" And he's like, "Sure," and he walked away. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was a big deal. Like as he was walking up, I was like, "All right, what's he gonna say?" Because again, I had studied what he said to people. I know if he enjoys someone or not. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, do you have any other professional things going on right now that you'd like to talk about or mention? No, just the you know, it's really just the movie. I mean, you know, uh, my I have a website just for myself as well, stevemazon.com, and that's just me touring the country, performing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, going to comedy clubs. Um, so yeah, really just that in the movie. That's the the, the whole focus of uh, of my life besides trying to have kids. Yeah. <laughs> Which I can't wait to have money for. Get much <laughs> like you you said. Well, thank you very much for yeah, thank you for having me. Well, this time is, with me. I I, I got to say this was fantastic being able to spend this much time. It was usually like you know, all right, we got ten minutes to talk. Yeah. To you. Try and cram everything. It, it it was nice even on my own end. I think you asked me some questions. Like, oh, why do you think people in the Midwest laugh at things? And it's one of those things I, you know, we just don't have time to sometimes get to the bottom of things, but it's just, I know it's something I think. Yeah. So it was nice, even for the movie or the project, to look back on some things that, you know, I'm usually giving, again, a quick minute synopsis of the movie. They talk about it, and after five minutes, people go, so did you get on? And, and right. it's over. So it's, it was nice to kind of this dig a little very, deeper. This, yeah, this is the long version. I like it. It was, yeah, it was <laughs> a lot of fun. Because, again, there's a lot of things I had never, you know, uh, asked myself or oh why is that or 
so it was yeah it was kind of fun to to think about them even if i didn't get give you a good answer it's it's nice to kind of to scratch that part of my brain and wonder about it so you know one thing i was wondering real quick uh You've been in town with this film and all yeah. this stuff. Uh, have you done any stand-up while you were here? I'm trying to think if I did any of this. We've been so busy doing publicity for the movie. I'm trying to think if I actually did any stand-up. No, I think, yeah. I think my last stand-up set was in L.A. before coming here. All right, well, you know, next time you're in Chicago. <laughs> next time, yeah. No, definitely. Listen, uh, the, I think you know, the other problem was I did try and line up a couple of weeks at Zany's, but they were doing the comedy festival over oh, these right. two weeks. Yeah, so, it's a very, so it was big, a very busy names. time. Yeah. <laughs> During the thing. All right. So I, I like to um, end the show by um, letting the the guest have the last last uh, word or statement mm. or something like that. So uh, no pressure, but it's the last thing. And then they hear music and it's the thing they'll remember forever. So uh, whenever you're ready. <laughs> well, I'm going to go to a <laughs> go. Right. I'm going to go to a stock line. This is, you know, uh, again, I hope I haven't come across too sappy. But the one thing I've learned from this whole project uh, is it look, it's not how much time you have, whether that's you get a cancer or uh, get hit by a bus or anything. The end will be coming for everyone. It's not how much time you have. It's what you do with it.